What do you want your theme music to be? Ooh. Um. <laughs> oh boy. Patsy Klein. Patsy Klein. What's the title? We'll find it. We'll yeah. Find it. Okay. That, Siri, what, <laughs> what is this song that she's mumbling? That's my theme. Did you ever follow that um, fellow on the internet who was running that pencil sharpening service? No. He had kind of a run-on joke um, that became an obsession of his, where he would do a lot of really specific research about how to do mundane tasks and he wrote it ended up becoming a larger project where he wrote a book about how to do a really great handshake and one of the one of the mundane tasks in the book was how to shop or sharpen a pencil perfectly and then that led to like a YouTube channel and then he started doing an online business where you could send him your pencils my name's David Reese and I'm the founder of artisanalpencilsharpening.com I thought that I would just take you through the few necessary items that are required for any pencil sharpener's toolkit. One of the most important items, of course, are pencils. It is possible to sharpen pencils without a pencil sharpener, but it is impossible to sharpen a pencil without a pencil. And then for three or four dollars, he would send them back to you with like a certificate of authenticity that he had sharpened them properly and they would come in um, a little plastic tube to maintain the integrity of the point of the pencil and stuff. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Once I've sharpened the pencil, collected and bagged the shavings, cut the rubber tubing to protect the point, then the pencil is put within this plastic tube, labeled along with the label for the shavings that indicates the sharpening date, the lighting conditions, the level of sharpness achieved in my initials, and then the whole kit and caboodle is sent back through the mail to the client along with a certificate of sharpening. Very internet-y, very boing-boing-y. That sounds really cool. Uh, there's a fellow, Charlie Murray, do you know him? No. He's in the CN Tower liquidation. Uh, that's the name of their collective. Uh, and I don't think there's a the in front of it, but he, I think he, he held a workshop, I think it, as a part of a larger residency, but it culminated in a workshop on how to dig a hole. <laughs> and it's kind of in the same vein of, um, yeah, uh, expertise of the mundane in a, in a way that I, like, just satisfies me totally. Was the hole in any particular location that made it difficult or? Yeah, I don't know, actually. It's kind of a universal hole I, digging. Yeah, I think it was just universal <laughs> hole digging. The cumulative recessing of the earth. <laughs> Or something like that. I just made that up. Yeah. I remember uh, when I was probably eight or nine years old, there was this kid that lived down the street from me, and he had one of those uh, root cellars in his house, mm. similar to like Wizard of Oz, you know, with the trap doors mm -hmm. that kind of mm -hmm. lead down to the basement. Yep. And it was locked up, and I'd never seen anything like that before, and I wanted to know what was inside it. Totally. And he told me that he was secretly digging a hole to China. And I found that fascinating. I was like, how does that even work? What, what happens when you get to the center of the world? And how do you, how do you start coming up? <laughs> yeah, there was a root cellar like that down the street from me when I was growing up. And uh, my best friend, Lauren, who lived next door, and I were convinced that a witch lived down there. And then one time I was sick and we had put together this detective kit and we're mm -hmm. like going around the neighborhood and 
like solving mysteries and stuff but I was sick that day and she came back and she's like I found fingerprints <laughs> and it was like this big thing where she had gotten into this or she had you know cracked the next layer of the root cellar without me and it was so bad I used to go down in my grandparents place <laughs> and they had a root cellar that they would keep all their victory garden vegetables and every time it would rain heavily the cellar would flood full of sewage. Mm. My granddad would have to go down with these big rubber boots and turn on a sub pump and, and clean it out. And it's just horrific. Wait, were they victory garden vegetables and yeah. that they had won prizes? No. Oh. It, like, uh, the tradition back in World War II was all of the, um, the greatest generation old people, they would keep gardens at their house mm -hmm. in order to keep the food supply high right. um, in Canada. And a lot of the, the veterans from that war, they continued doing, uh, keeping gardens into their 80s until they died. And uh, I always found that fascinating because they didn't need to, right? They had mm -hmm. that same access to supermarkets and stuff that everybody else did, but they grew like half of their food. On this farm in the rolling hill country of Northern Maryland, the holders rallying to the call for more food joined the growing army of victory gardeners. When the maples are in bloom, it's time to begin planting. I feel like a lot of people who endured wartime lifestyles, they took on those attitudes for the rest of their lives mm -hmm. in major ways. So that makes sense to me, even though you're like, but guys. I hope some of that attitude comes back. I think that uh, there's a couple of good things that come out of major recessions, like we're just getting over now. Mm -hmm. um, one is that people tend to be a little bit more open-minded to the idea of rainy day funds and the idea that stuff is a little bit more precarious than we take for granted. And then the other cool thing that happens is like people get shuffled, really talented, smart people get shuffled into jobs that they normally would never take. Yeah, totally. So you get really brilliant people working at the post office or you get really brilliant people working at the LCBO. Yeah. And I think that it's one of the it's one of the aspects that led to strong unions and stuff in in the old days, and it's one of the aspects that led to a lot of important political change that happened in the '60s because you had all these people that were too talented for the job that they were in, but they made the most of it and turned those institutions into better places to work. Yep, totally. I think also, I don't know. I have a lot of respect for blue collar trades work I'm a trades worker and I think that that kind of lifestyle affords for or I always cons I always think that it's a creative project mm -hmm. and even the delivering of mail or the you know well spot welding or the you know all of those things are creative endeavors and that you know there's a, a lot of space uh, whereas you would Maybe you only think that like the creative people are doing creative things. The yeah, the actual creative work is happening on such a broader scale mm -hmm. because of the demands of lifestyle and economy and all that kind of thing. I remember when I was in chemistry class in high school, um, the teacher was super enthusiastic about trying to get me and a, a bunch of other art kids to consider going into the sciences mm. because the consensus in their field is that there's way too many of the same type of person that's going into to their field. Mm -hmm. And they need creative, outside-the-box, weird people just as much as, as the arts do. Yeah, and totally. 
it's it's uh it's it's neat and inspiring to see people like Elon Musk um, who are from an engineering background but they actually build crazy things mm -hmm. and they do things like they'll just put out a statement paper and they'll say like we should revolutionize public transit why because because why are we here mm -hmm. we should be building the Star Trek future because mm -hmm. otherwise what's the point of even being here yeah well it's neat when they're also politicized and creative and you know scientific enough and focused enough to you know really actualize all of these otherwise lofty mm -hmm. ideas the tech sector is mm -hmm. a is a spot where those scientific minded creative expressive um things are happening where people who are really good at formulas and all that kind of stuff produce amazing things that link and it seems like Apple has been a good influence on that community, too, because they, they seem to be boosting everybody's taste level. Mm. So you've got these these really techie people who are working on beautifully designed machines, and mm -hmm. they kind of, through osmosis, they get uh, uh, their taste level kind of gets boosted up a little bit, and they start to be interested in typography, and they start to be interested in having these events that are kind of... Um, the line between engineering and design is kind of blurred and you've got people from both communities kind of yeah. working. Mm -hmm. And then there's also an overlap with the web design, right? You've got mm -hmm. designers that are trying to make stuff beautiful. Mm -hmm. Like that was a, an afterthought in the, the first wave of, of internet stuff, right? It was all kind of utilitarian and ugly. Right. And now so much of the things that they try to build into HTML5 or whatever the new thing is are art driven. It's yeah. like, well, how can we do computer generated graphics and how can we have a wide variety of fonts that are all um, dynamic and yeah well because they understand that design affects people mm -hmm. and there is a connection between you know the screen and the user and the way that you want to dive into something and spend hours on online or hours navigating this or that and exploring is really about the design of the interface and that's cool that people are conscious of of that really basic thing and continue to strive for deeper connections with you know their unknown audience massive mm -hmm. people masses of people it's really so, neat so when it comes to like your own uh work in the city like what's what's your your uh your 10 minute bio like how did you start to get interested in in bringing people together and doing art events and things like that well the art events thing is kind of my side project um that happened well if, if we back up to 2010 <laughs> i was i was running i was running a post service a mail service uh, for several years in Halifax, um, where I was delivering people's mail for free and had all these little post boxes up around the city. Um, and my project was called City Mail, and it was really basic. It was just the delivery of mail. Um, but I started doing it regularly at events. Uh, they had like a Nuit Blanche version in Halifax called Nocturne. And then I was also a regular for five or six years at a music festival in New Brunswick called Sappy Fest and would do the service there for like a blitz for a weekend and that's where I met the Toronto contingent that I uh, started working with uh, 
at Long Winter. Which so is how did the, the post office work? You would just go tour around to the different mailboxes and depending on the address, you would just take whatever's in the mailbox and drop it off to the, the place? Yeah, yeah. And the place could be described however it needed to be described. So if somebody the didn't... The big tree. Yeah, yeah. At the yeah. corner of... Yeah, the corner of, you know, this and that. Um, or beside the house with the purple door or whatever. Um, and so it was really about sort of this literacy of place and how we navigate um, our city and a lot about creating a physical map with that was momentary. And anyways, a lot of things. Um, and it started out as a totally just a fun project for me. And I eventually saw it artistic leg legitimacy and did a bunch of residencies and got grants and sort of was able to sustain myself and the project for a while. And then when I moved to Toronto, I was seeking still the connection with my physical place, but also have been pursuing a more abstract idea about how our surroundings uh, affect us and how we affect them, sort of a reciprocal relationship and ultimately resolved to go to cabinet building school um, mm. two years ago. And so I did a year long diploma at um, Humber College and have for the last year been restoring, building new, um, and doing a bunch of building maintenance, sorry, restoring furniture and building some new furniture, um, all at uh, one building at U of T at the Hart House. That's rad, man. Yeah. I also organize Long Winter. Um, Does it, uh, the thing that, that comes to mind immediately when I hear those two interests is, uh, do you like those mini libraries that have been <laughs> sprouting out online? Yeah. Those little street they ones? they got one just over on the, on the corner there. I don't use them as much as you would think I would, but because I do read a lot yeah. and I frequent the library, there's uh, many of them. Um, um, and through my work, I have a U of T library card. But yeah, the concept is really awesome, and I'm totally enamored with the project. There seems to be a whole community of people who are excited about designing their own mm. and contributing to it, too. Yeah. And then they post the pictures online, and they go like, oh, check out the hinges I put on this one. Just this like... is our little free library, which is a place where people can come and take a book, leave a book but share with no cost, no money. These personal miniature media centers are popping up in front yards across Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> the, the guy that I work with knows like every single type of screw possible. <laughs> and our workshop has been passed down through decades of carpenters working at the U of T specifically on lots of different dynamic pieces of furniture and parts of buildings. And so every screw, every kind of latch, every kind of, you know, everything is in the shop. And just from seeing the range of things, I'm able to distinguish like really small physical differences that are otherwise unnoticeable. Like you'd pick up a screw and you'd be like, yeah. And I can be like, oh, this one's for a particle board or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of thing is really fascinating to me. Just like very tiny variations and places where paint overlaps and anyways I just you ever try to weave that literacy into metaphors when you're just talking to somebody about an unrelated subject <laughs> it's a lot like a Phillips head uh, screwdriver you, <laughs> you know a Robertson is really the best kind of screw head uh, but it's only found in Canada and that's how you know it's the best <laughs> no I don't really 
but that's not really my interest either like mm. I like those things yeah. and I like learning about them and seeing them but I'm really such a I'm in this particular field but I have I'm like a big thinker kind of thing mm -hmm. I like philosophy I like um, the ideas behind it all and why we're drawn to certain things so uh, so yeah it's a funny it's a funny world but I'm in that that kind of thing you were describing before. And you can see uh, evidence of that, like whenever I go to the long winter parties, you're always climbing around on ladders. And yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> hammers in your hand. Yeah, oh yeah, that's that's what I like to do, for sure. Um, and I, f I feel like it comes in handy. In the, in the putting on of a thing, there's the bringing it all together, and I like, I really like bringing it all together, and that's what that's what's satisfying about long winter. There's definitely a DIY attitude and that's a bunch of people like taping cords to the ground and totally last minute, but we get it done every month. So. Yeah, and yeah. it almost is um, part of the, the reason it's so fun to go to those things is the casualness about it. Um, I remember being very confused when they added Luminato to the calendar uh Illuminato festival the arts festival yeah it was kind of um a com it came after they had announced and done Nuit Blanche for a couple of cycles oh and it was to me like the polar opposite of something like Long Winter where it was very oh, yeah. staged and ex you would have things like announcing as part of Illuminato Leonard Cohen yeah and it would oh, be yeah. like $300 or $150 tickets to go to the thing he's like well how is that any different than just a regular concert that happens to be going on yeah at the same time you totally know? yeah they have all the big names at like all the biggest places and the big big parties and things yeah that's cool that all of that stuff happens in the city I haven't participated in any of the Illuminato things but I have a friend who works for Luminato doing their daily newspaper, which I didn't even know that there was a daily newspaper. It goes newspaper. on all through the year? They no, have... no, no, just, just for the festivals, like, <laughs> update, like, last week, Marina Abramovich stood and stared, and it was amazing. <laughs> um, but just the fact that there's that small print publication and that my funny designer friend is employed for a couple weeks is funny the way that it touches you you know and you're like oh okay we can go to a couple shows for free Me and my friend time. todd julie were part of the i think it was the second or the third nuit blanche we ran a thing called the secular confession booth on uh, in this old church and basically the premise was that we had um, an all-white uh graphic design for the interiors of, of the confession booth and things and we had um a white screen dividing the people who were confessing from the person who was listening to the confessions. And we paired, um, we got a bunch of volunteers from our friend group to sit and listen to people confess their things. And it was all anonymous and it was pretty cool. Um, you could just see like the silhouette of the person that was listening to you. And there would be like an initial like 20 or 30 seconds where everybody would come into the booth and they would just start saying like, all right, be straight with me. This is being recorded, right? You're gonna you're gonna put this on the internet, right? And you're like, no, 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 no. It's like, well, what is this for? What what do you what do you want me to do? It's just like it's your time. You can just tell a stranger something that you might not be comfortable telling your friends or or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then they would stall, and then they would go in and and uh, and you'd be surprised at like what the most common confessions were. Like, what would you anticipate the average person would would confess? I guess my mind would go like to a simple or like to the classic 
Catholic sin mm-hmm. categories of like you know cheating or stealing or yeah, something. Yeah, like we that. thought that there was going to be a lot of um, a lot of hanky panky business. We thought there was going to be a lot of people stealing money from their work. Not so much. What Number one confession. Yeah. I hate all of my friends, and I don't know what to do about it. No. How creepy is that? Really? Yeah. Oh, that sucks. I know it's terrible. Ugh. Move to a different city. Keep moving till you find them. Yeah. I don't know. Just keep shuffling the deck. Yeah, There's a lot keep of different shuffling types the deck. This is a big city. Mm-hmm. I feel like it took me a while here to, you know, find find your folks. You know, it takes it does take a while, and it's and it's not that they're bad. It's just the connection level. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's harder for other people too, being introverts or where they work or how you know what their situation is. Oh, that's that sucks. What Sad. was what else was was there? Uh, the most interesting one of the night was somebody came in and was telling a story about how they were an inter- interdimensional traveler that had. Uh, been living in Toronto the last like six months and was from the future and um, they're just here to like observe things and right on (laughs) take notes notes. Um, that's amazing yeah it was pretty cool and it was also neat to see uh, all of the the nuts and bolts all of the behind the scenes with the organizing committee and stuff Mm -hmm. and how Mm -hmm. that's put together by a very small team of people they have like one kind of city representative that oversees the budgeting Mm -hmm. and then they they pick a couple of like curators to run each of the zones um so yeah it was it was really interesting to to see they they're always like really apprehensive about making the curation too heavy-handed to the point where it stifles yeah the artists and they just aren't able to like pull enough like treatments out of the the random pile to fit with with the uh, the idea that they have so they always end up like coming up with a theme that you can spin anyway in right. the world it's it's like uh yeah you know juxtaposition you go like oh okay well <laughs> yeah i have a pre-existing idea i can write a treatment that totally fit that's perfect that's totally perfect yeah i think that's that's definitely the way you got to do it i mean we at long winter i think we started out with like concepts and stuff <laughs> but in the end it was just like we know a lot of people who want to do a lot of shit and like, that's cool. Let's not define it. Uh, yeah. It, that fell by the wayside really quickly. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing about curating is that it the theme kind of presents itself after you've done, like yeah. after the show is together, you're like, Oh my God, like those guys are using reflective tape and like those guys are having that like sheeny thing and like it all feels like we're underwater and you know or like whatever um it just yeah and then there's connections there are connections and and um there's a zeitgeist that is inescapable yeah i kind of i like that i like Mm -hmm. to to yeah it is about listening you know you don't have to be the one writing the script it is about listening to the trends that are happening around you um i don't think that's the role of the curator i think it's just i don't know i yeah just being open to things and allowing them to happen and suggesting things based on you know past experiences but it's not anyways yeah when events are open into the city it's it's not a it's not a gallery it's not formal it's it's a lot more um, interactive and has a, has a lot more uh, points of engagement. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that the after, 
after the reflection from the from the in retrospect it is very valuable would you and your gang be interested in in uh, running a zone at Nui Blanche at some point yeah I'm sure that that would I'm sure that would be interesting to me and my gang <laughs> yeah um we're definitely open to uh trying out new things we've we did two years in a row at the AGO. You were in the first year, um, and it was really cool to same kind of same kind of thing as you like make relationships with the people at the gallery mm -hmm. and get a sense of how that giant machine works. You yep. know, like the load in the people who move the things in the building, and yeah, that's that's interesting. And definitely, the second year was having having the first year behind us. We were more efficient, and I was able to plan for all of that and it was yeah it was good so i found it amazing in terms of a confidence building exercise too mm -hmm. because as soon as you pull the curtain up yeah. at a big organization like that you go like oh it just works like anywhere else and yeah. you need to call this person if you need this done and mm -hmm. you know you sit up it goes on the walls and try and remember their names just try <laughs> and remember their names if you can use their name and say like thanks jerry yeah thanks for that cart totally i'll bring it back no problem you know you our confident person who remembers names easier said than done but said than done but it goes a long way i wish that it, whoever's running the nuit blanche this fall i've got a couple of suggestions what are they i think that they need a zone one zone should be freeform and i think that what i'd <laughs> like to see is that there's a whole lot of there's kind of a spectator culture that's been dominant in the last couple of Nuit Blanche cycles mm -hmm. where they're so overwhelmed by um, people from the suburbs mm. who don't really know what's going on and are packing the streets. And there doesn't seem to be an onus to like try to plan as many events as possible to take advantage of the fact that there's huge crowds. Right. So I feel like there needs to be at least one zone that's free form where people can just the night of, they can just set up, exhibits or a parade or or whatever in like one area of the hmm. city so there could be people juggling or there could be people putting on a play or just chaos right i think that would be crazy and then the second thing i think that they need is to get that egyptian spirit you know how like back in the old days you have this idea that you can build a pyramid if you just have enough like people who are devoted to it uh-huh i'd like to see some sort of event that was like a big move type of thing like we could string a bunch of streetcars together and we could have like a tug-of-war rope attached to it Whoa. and throughout the night like just the masses of people they all participate in towing this giant load across the city and it could have like a big neon sign across the top that says like the the total amount of like meters it's gone throughout the night and just right. go crisscross back and forth as That's like a cool. statement for like what we could do together if yeah. we just all pull in the same direction. I don't know the name of the artist, but there is some guy who like actually moved a sand dune with a bunch of people, mm -hmm. and it's like a famous project that I don't I can't reference adequately, but same kind of idea. I feel like yeah, that is a good idea. We should do that in Toronto. Yeah, but that's that would be like a that would be like one artist orchestrating. It could be you. Mm -hmm. Do you want to collaborate on it? I need. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I we can take over the streetcar street. thing might be, yeah. I feel like it would be a little bit scary for people yes. to like get in front of a streetcar. Yes, we have to do something that's accessible to the every every man. I like that it's scary though. 
Yeah, well, you can have I mean, an it could be on it that can just put on the brakes if there's any danger. But I don't. If they're so heavy, it'll go slow. You think? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea how streetcars work. And and what? People can be aboard the streetcar. We could have like a whole party going on on the streetcar. <laughs> just like drinks and stuff. Ride and could, it or tow it. Here, could encourage them. We'll just yell out through the windows. Yeah, you Mush. got this. <laughs> oh man, that is really Egyptian. Like the slave drivers. I don't know. That's a little bit too like hierarchical. I mean, well, I get after it. After you but get your I'm turn of a... pulling, you get to come aboard the car and you get a, a refreshment. You're like, I've earned this. <laughs> Maybe. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. See, we, this we, is why we, I need a collaborator <laughs> to tell me where I've gone too far. Okay, we've got a starting of an idea. I'm, I'm into it. I, d- I really do like it. Um, but, like, yeah, 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 yeah. I like the idea of moving something through the streets. That's pretty good. Pretty nice. good idea. Maybe it could just be, like, a giant ball. Okay. <laughs> giant ball of elastic bands. No. That would be so easy. <laughs> like really big. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, the other thing that uh, that disappointed me, I remember like the first Nuit Blanche was so amazing, and then there seemed to be this idea that like oh we got to make sure that we change things up every year, so we're mm-hmm. not going to invite back any of the artists that had really successful exhibits. Yeah. From the first year. Definitely an issue. Yeah, and I was like, "What? What are you doing? It's yeah. not like there's there's only a couple of spots. They've got hundreds of things going on over the city. Like, yeah, try to make the event better every year by inviting back all this all the people that did good. And like artists generally have a lot of different ideas, so mm-hmm. like it's not going to be the same thing, even if it's the same artist. Yeah, totally. Did you go swimming that uh, that first year? When was the first year? No, I, I didn't. Actually, I haven't been to very many of them. No, I moved back to town 2011. Mm. So I've missed a bunch of them. And then I remember being so overwhelmed, like not really knowing how to navigate it. Because in Halifax, the the Halifax version is very small scale. There are crowds, like to the extent that Halifax makes crowds. Um, And there's some cool stuff going on, but it's... uh, um, you know, it's it's definitely easy to navigate, and you can have a fun time. Um, but I was totally overwhelmed. Um, in my in my first couple forays, and then I, to be honest, I've, I've kind of been avoiding it. Like mm-hmm. I'm really not a crowd person, despite yeah. running a large music festival, art, music and arts festival. I, you know, and and so and so the the projects that I would seek out would be the ones that are in non-centralized locations so if and i feel like that's what i my reaction about or the response to a couple of the uh, people who participated last this past year was that it was a little less centralized right and so there were some like non-totally cuckoo zones which is a good thing but i didn't actually participate i think i was out of town actually. i think one thing that they did really well last year was um they had a giant party at Nathan Phillips Square mm-hmm. that was very traditional. It just had a stage and musical acts and people dancing. Probably some glow sticks. And so a lot of the people who didn't know what to do that night, they ended up there. Mm-hmm. And they were out on the fringes, like on the OCAD campus and stuff, it was a little less busy. So you could have things like um, OCAD's area had this great thing called um, cat therapy. 
And oh. it was like a, an actual trained therapist that was dressed up as a cat, with like a mask on. Oh, really? And she was uh, doing like a Jewish accent and stuff. And they were, uh, <laughs> you just asked her questions and she gave you therapy. Oh. And uh, they had this other thing called uh, the afterlife. And it was a dance party with a, a guy in a skeleton suit in front of a giant LED light system. And every time you'd open up the door, the music would, like, blare out, and he'd, he'd dance with you. Oh, that's cool. That's fun. There was free haircuts. Oh, yeah. Pad. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Was last year the one with the Gardener Project, too? Like, there was a bunch of... There was, like, a cool, like, snow zone, like, with fake snow under the Gardener. And I was like, that's cool. Oh, that's rad. I don't know if it was last year or the year before. I didn't see... I didn't see 10% of, yeah. of things. Yeah. But I definitely think there needs to be like lightning rod stations that draw in all of the suburban people that are just looking to drink definitely. in the street. Definitely. But there should also be like off, you know, a, like broaden the scope and mm-hmm. if it's about, you know, uh engaging and animating different parts of the city, then do, you know, really get into the different parts of the city, you know? There's some really neat very you know weird places that could be so awesome um or could be just yeah so how do you do it do you do you do you um propose a site or do you propose a project with site is a question mark uh and they place you or both okay you can do both but you know the zones ahead of time they've like said like these are the zones so like no no they they kind of shuffle you into one zone or the other depending on what they think your thing okay. would work best in. Okay. Uh, the three curators kind of work together. I don't yeah. think that there's a, a divide between them. And uh, you can, uh, you come up with the idea and then they kind of, they coach you on how to make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, there's kind of a couple of different tiers. There's like a, 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 an upper tier where it's a city kind of sanctioned thing. Mm. And they'll help you with insurance and sponsorship. And they'll get you like a really cool venue to put it on and make it big. And then they put it on the maps with like the, the star and all that kind of stuff. Right. And then there's other ones that are a little bit more um, casual where the money isn't as high for the thing. And you can run it however you like. Like I could technically like have an event inside my house if I wanted to. And, and no insurance at all. I or don't, like they don't. That's not an yeah, issue. They, I don't. I don't think they provide like okay. city staff and stuff to right. help you out with oh, okay. some of them. Okay. Yeah, actually, now I'm remembering what I did. We went out uh, and like roared around for up until ten o'clock, and then uh, my boyfriend had decided to host a party on that night for all the people who didn't want it, like the sort of people who were not interested in participating which kind of was a bust it's like hosting a new year's party you know like everybody wants to be everywhere and so nobody's going to commit so anyways that happened but we ended up going to a couple of different places and one of the things that i had chosen was a dance performance of some sort at a location that when we got there there was a couple people kind of like skulking around the building being like which door do we go in how do we do this? And nobody figured it out. And we all just sort of gave up at a certain point. So mm, that's probably on the second year, I would say. The first Nui Blanche that they had in Toronto uh, was not popular. Not, it didn't seem like anybody in the suburbs bothered to come out for it. Right. And it happened at a really misty, dreary night in Toronto. Yeah. So there's all this like great fog and kind of atmosphere. 
and me and my friend Todd, we ate a bunch of Percocet so that like our feet wouldn't get sore. <laughs> and uh, we we went from one end of the city to the other, and going in around like three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning when there was nobody else out, the exhibits were very very spooky. They had um, a fog area um, on the U of T campus where you walk into this green um, park and it's completely enveloped in fog to mm. the point where like you can't see your hand three yeah. foot feet in front of you yeah and you're kind of passing through this fog and every so often you'll see like somebody come out of the fog at you that's like also wandering mm. through it and you're just like isn't this crazy yeah yeah totally you, you get that weird kind of um post september 11th type of feeling where you're just very aware of your surroundings and aware that like there's other people here you found like another traveler and you're yeah. like hey what did you see over there is there yeah. anything that way yeah like, yeah there's this this tree and it's all covered in wishes and you can like write out on a wish on the thing and you can tie it to the branch yeah. and then read everybody else's th- I love that. Layer after layer. That's beautiful. I, I mean, that's what's so cool about, you know, environmental art. Mm-hmm. Like the large scale scuff, stuff is what I am attracted to, um, definitely. Because um, when you're wandering around, the question is, is this art? <laughs> you know, you can, you, you're like, it's foggy. Is this art? You know, like, there's a tree. Is it art? You know, it's lit up. Oh, my God. You know, there's um. There's a residency and sort of um, arts event uh, in this very remote location in uh, Nova Scotia on the Bay of Fundy uh, in a region, lower economy, Nova Mm -hmm. Scotia. Um, And it's called the White Rabbit Arts Festival. And every year they host residents who do a week-long sort of stay. Um, The property is really dynamic. It's forest. It's got a little brook uh, traveling through it there's a house and a greenhouse and an orchard and you cross the road that leads to it and you're on the bay of fundy which mm-hmm. has the highest tides in the world highest and lowest tides in the world the biggest difference between those those points um and then at the end of the week they invite people to come and see sort of the products of the of the work and for the first couple of years it was kind of like this big sort of night long party kind of like nuit blanche but you're in you're in, you're in this nature environment um and you're wandering around on the paths sort of uh referring to this hand drawn map that's different every year and you are in that same sort of inquisitive state where you're like oh my god there's a little bit of yarn hanging from the branch <laughs> like or you just you know like everything you're not really sure where you are and the whole question of your environment is in play and that is that was always um i like the state that people are in and that's kind of the state that i seek to create and see happen around me or kind of feel like i'm in all the time is like oh my god there's some writing in this sidewalk Mm -hmm. this is art Mm -hmm. somebody forgot you know all this stuff it's so it's so exciting and cool and it would be amazing if if more people in the art community kind of kept that spirit going all year round where there was just like a weekly or monthly onus on everybody to do a little bit of culture jamming Mm. try to try to do something to surprise people yeah leave a little a little hidden item or something in a, in a place that people wouldn't expect. Yeah. I liked when um, that yarn bombing community was kind of going around in but Toronto. I, I kind of feel like it's happening all the time. Yeah. Like, 
in the same way, like, if you walk down any alleyway in this city, like, you'll find that. It's like, oh, my God, those people chose to use green on green. That's so beautiful. Or anybody who's covering up graffiti with a different color paint and then the paint gradations change from, like, close to kind of red brick to, like, that's not at all the color that this building is, but cool. You just, you know... And that's that's beautiful. Like all of these interpretations that are just tiny, small things, people making places, you know, cement sculptures so that cars don't ram into the side of their garage mm-hmm. or um, yeah, just I, I feel like I see those interventions. They're not by the explicitly creative uh, demographic but they are by people who are creating things in their day-to-day uh, lives that are very much like a, you know, straddle the sculpture function uh, line. And I don't know. I feel like I see it everywhere. Definitely. But the culture jamming thing. Yeah. It's just about, it's just about looking mm-hmm. maybe, but I also, I also think that it's nice to, uh, to think about artists having that impetus to low pressure productivity, especially mid career artists. Because I think we all have that kind of spirit when we're in college. And then once you start to get more into commerce and things and commercial side of, of doing art, you have less time to do fun things. Yep. Or you feel like you're a bit stretched too thin to be generous in that, that kind of way. Right. Of uh, that Amelie type of way where you want to yeah. make everybody's community <laughs> like a little bit more surprising. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, down on the West Toronto rail path that comes near our place. um, They, uh, somebody made like a nine foot tall wooden sculpture. Mm. Did you see that? Yeah, I totally did. Made out of broken skateboards or something. I used to (laughs) run past that all the time. And every single time I passed, it was in a different position. It was kind (laughs) of like a million sided dice that could be rolled. And people were tagging it. I have a, I have a couple of photos of that. It's it was so cool. That was my favorite thing. I I have a feeling the city must have removed it. Is it not there anymore? Yeah, no, it no, it disappeared last summer. Oh. But uh, boy, boy, that was a gift. I mean, it must it have was. weighed two hundred, three hundred pounds. I brought my brother down there actually, and we were like, let's let's participate. Like, let's shift it, you know. <laughs> and we're like, oh, you know, it was really a lot of work. You could. Uh, you could turn it into a D20, but just on the bottom sides so that it's hidden and somebody has to roll it in order to see that somebody's taken the time to write numbers on the thing. Oh. Come back. Wait, wait. Is a D20 like a, a 20 sided? Yeah, okay. T- gotcha, gotcha, dice. gotcha, gotcha. Right. Okay. <laughs> totally. That's actually the answer. That's a lot of the way I thought about it. Yes. Were you shocked uh, last summer when they bushwhacked the the rail path you know what i mean when there used to be quite a lot of greenery in around the rail you know what i hadn't been i moved i moved out of the neighborhood in july and i stopped like i used to go running up and down that path like every morning basically did they do that yeah well they had to put in they've built the union pearson express that went through there and so they cut down all the trees and all of the the wild shame. plants and stuff. Because that was one of David Miller's initiatives, right? Is they oh. wanted to use the rail lines as being um, zones that were for indigenous plants. Mm. So they had Toronto um, workers go through there and seed it. Oh. With a lot of, like, indigenous plants. Oh, I didn't even know that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, that was one of my favorite zones. And it still is my favorite. I just don't live in the neighborhood um, anymore. But, oh, so nice. I, yeah, I saw rabbits and all kinds of birds there. And I love the mix between the natural and the industrial. It's so, mm-hmm. so beautiful. You wouldn't um, think it would work on paper, but it, it's totally fascinating to oh, see man. trains and stuff going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always used to think about those people on there. Yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah. I get tripped out when I see airplanes too, because I have a totally. hard time looking at it and go, that's a metal tube and there's like 150 people in that. Where are they going? If you just spent, I used to, um, at the same apartment that was nearby that rail path, um, in the summers it was too hot. I had a room in the attic and so I'd sleep on the, uh, third floor balcony mm-hmm. in the summertime just like bring out the futon mattress have a little extension cord for my reading lamp it was really cool <laughs> but then i would just stare up at the sky and uh, count the planes before falling asleep and it was there's so many and you, you completely like, miss it right like there's thousands of people suspended in the sky at any given time mm-hmm. and that's fucking insane yeah Totally. I was doing a bit of uh, plane photography for a music video last summer, and just sitting in Sororan Park, it's like every five minutes a a jet goes by. I thought that I was going to be there for hours waiting for a plane, but it's all the time. Yeah. On Toronto Island, I spend a lot of time out there. There's uh, a nice uh, repertoire of recreational, like, small planes. That's kind of nice to to see, because, I don't know, there's just cool cool to have some diversity and you're like oh anyway whatever yeah they're pretty cute they're cute just imagine their uh uh what you call it footprint uh geez i'm just spacing on the name of the uh, carbon footprint oh yes those those independent (laughs) flyers (laughs) what are they gonna make some electric planes yeah um yeah i just uh fucking i i've been uh really uh tied up about the uh the airport expansion on the island mm-hmm. i have that's i have a suspicion that the plan for the federal government is they want to turn that whole island into an airport i think they want to turn it into LaGuardia, like the the sister airport of right. pearson yeah because they just look at all of that non-developed land and they go like it'd be so easy we just pave it all and just bring it yeah it's really interesting. It's um, the island has been through so many. Like it is such a, a such a, a metaphor for all of the political uh, waves um, and sort of ideological waves of urban planning and that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, that are really fascinating. Um, just that the fact that there were houses on the entire uh, on the entire island, like it was a densely populated town at one point at one point and then after the second world war when um the ideology of parks for the people which is an admirable um mentality uh just took over and they uh began um bulldozing all of these houses and they were like kind of like amazing houses wow um if you these aren't little cottages there were little cottages there were little cottages and some of the existing ones that are still on wards island are Mm -hmm. 
are those little cottages that are remaining. But some of them were kind of like big estates. The Massey family, who are, you know, Massey College Massey and Hall. Massey Hall, all um, they had an estate there. And yeah, there it was just think of like colonial architecture. Um, just kind of some beautiful stuff, but also mixed in little villages. And all of Center Island was kind of the downtown. It had lots of shops and things like that. Wow. And so they moved from west to east, uh, basically bulldozing the houses. And they took 20 years. And by the 70s, the, they, um, the residents of the island staged a revolution. And basically, like, they were, they were steps away from bloodshed. Wow. Um, uh, they removed all of the uh, numbers on all the houses uh, so that all of the city officials couldn't find the houses that they were supposed to bulldoze and um, stood in front of the, you know, stood in front of the machines and mm -hmm. said, you're not going any further. And that's why there are still people who live out there. But like the whole thing. Anyways, it's just it's just fascinating. And then before that, obviously, well, not maybe not obviously, but it was um native land and it was a sandbar created by uh, a hurricane or something yeah and the scarborough Bluffs sort of washed into mm -hmm. there but now because of the leslie street spit it's not growing it's decreasing and, and it was just really it's a really interesting contribution to the city yeah and now this um this last wave this next wave of airport expansion airport existing and jets and condos and it's just the city is taking a new turn and the ideologies of sort of like the many millions who are going to move here soon correct into the giant condos are you know it's going to take over but anyways green space is it. important i just don't understand what this port authority is and yeah. how they're a non-elected body of an extension of the federal government and they seem to just do whatever the fuck they want you know, and I hate how each time there's an election cycle, they go, okay, okay, uh, all of the all of the the hyperbole about us bringing jets to the the waterfront that's just crazy talk. We're just talking about a minor expansion, and then it's always not true. Mm -hmm. It's it's six months will go by, and they'll go like, well, yeah, we're thinking about a few jets. Yeah. This is like we just need to we just need to expand the runway a little bit. We just got to fill in the harbor. Or, completely and expand the runway for each other. So crazy. You know, I don't understand yeah. uh, why, especially like, I think that it's going to, I think it's going to die down now that they've finished the link to the airport because it was cumbersome to get business clients from the airport downtown, but now there shouldn't be any <laughs> excuse. Yeah. We've got this tunnel. The tunnel is crazy. I can't imagine going through that tunnel. You can walk it. You can walk to the island now. <laughs> well, you can't really. Not yet. I think it's opening this summer, no? And I, you can't really go to the island like for a picnic in the tunnel. No? I think it's going to be like a, a, a funnel. More of a... Less than a tunnel, but more <laughs> of a funnel into the airport zone. Oh, okay. Like, in the wintertime, if you're commuting to the island, for about three weeks this winter the harbor had completely frozen over and so ferries weren't running um and for the few people who uh worked or went to school on the island or for the um handful of folks that live out there and had to commute to their jobs they were 
commuting through the airport. They which didn't skate it. They could have skated it. They could have <laughs> skated it. It was frozen over, and there were days when people were out there, like, scooting around, and it was so cool. That's crazy to me. I would yeah. be terrified down on It is. The like, it's light. such a... Did you go? Amazing. Yeah, I, I went. I didn't go to the open zone, um, but I did uh, skate the entire length of the island in canals. Wow. And it was... I mean, I don't think I've ever skated for that long by myself on like open on on like a non-skating rink Mm -hmm. ice area it was like cold enough so that the ice was six eight inches thick um and i could tell because i could see kind of natural cracks where or like bubbles that were about just by eyeballing it that that deep um, and then in other parts, I could see the bottom. Like, it was so clear. Whoa. I could see the bottom of... Because there's all those canals that sort of connect and run through all of the islands. There's many islands, actually. Yeah. And you can get to wards from Hanlins. So I started at um, the Artscape building, and I skated the whole length. But also the ice cracks, and it makes all of these sort of... You know, like, it makes all these noises that, as a kind of inexperienced you know ice skater on actual ice you don't know about yeah and they f- are totally freaky but they are so also exciting because mm-hmm. you're like i just gotta escape faster because yeah. i'm by myself <laughs> and like i just gotta keep going i can outrun this like you know or just like it's, it's all collapsing behind but you. you're so aware uh, as well you're looking around and you're um looking yeah you're just trying to be like super perceptive and it's very exciting uh, but anyways, back to the skating, uh, back to the uh, commuting to the city. They had to go through uh, the island airport and take uh, a bus, a shuttle bus, um, and had to navigate sort of the international airport, you know, signals and transit signals and go when there wasn't anything on the r- runway and stop and go. And apparently it was a big headache and it was kind of a thing, but going the reality of navigating through an international airport zone was very present, I think. Right. And so I, I did that a couple of times where I was like on the, on the bus going through the airport and yeah, it's, I, I don't expect that people who are taking the funnel would really, um, yeah, have, have ease and, uh, leisure. leisure. That's a bummer. Yeah. So, but the ferry's nice. Thing. And it's it's only yeah. going to be people who are true. using the airport that can. Yeah, that's true. I mean, this is all speculation. I don't actually know, but I would expect that it would be kind of. But maybe who knows? Actually, I don't know. I would put a security checkpoint at the end of the tunnel and some sort of tram or some sort of little skipper bus, little short bus to to ferry people over to the. Airport? Out of the airport zone and onto the rest of the island. But can you imagine? That's way more of a headache than taking the ferry. For Mm -hmm. sure it is. Mm -hmm. Just get on the ferry and look at the skyline. Okay. Okay, I'll do it. It's so much nicer. (laughs) Yeah. it's, It's funny when you run into somebody who doesn't frequent Toronto Island. Mm-hmm. They're totally missing out on one of the coolest places, absolutely coolest reasons to live here. Definitely, the fact that you can go to Hanlon's Point or whatever, and you can look out at the open water, 
and you can totally feel like you're not in Toronto anymore. Yeah. It makes living here so much more sane. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, my boyfriend and I built a sauna. Maybe I shouldn't be. Yeah, we built a sauna over there. <laughs> um, it's a private sauna for a lot of people, but. Um, and uh, we have been in the lake all through the winter, except for when there was giant ice berms. But it's like been a really cool thing. You used the sauna in the winter time. Oh yeah, that's Whoa. the best time to le- to use it. And so we were running like it's like snowing, and you're like going down, and you're jumping in the lake, and it's amazing. What? Yeah. You do the polar bear thing. Where yeah. You get cold. Yeah. Jeez. Really cold and really hot. That's supposed to be super good for, like, inflammation and stuff. I think it's super good for your body in general. It gets the blood pumping, like, out to the extremities and then into mm-hmm. the core. And it feels amazing. Crazy endorphins and stuff afterwards? Yeah, for sure. You feel invincible for, like, a while. I think I'd have a heart attack. You think that, but think... you'd actually be more powerful. Because I can't even handle hot and cold showers. I'm a total wimp when it comes to that stuff. The hot and cold showers are hard. They are. But, like... <laughs> Saunas are funny because you're in there, you're in this box, you're sweating, and you're like, I think I'm going to puke. And then, <laughs> or, like, it doesn't feel like that, but you're you're really hot, and yeah. you think that you can't you can't stand it. And so you go out, and for me, I'm just like, well, let's just go in the water. Yeah. Anyways, it's, it's a really... Um, and then you come out of the water, and you're just... You're top of the world. What are the mechanics of an indie sauna? Do you, do you, is it just a... A wooden box with a fire in the center? Or yeah, something? yeah, yeah. That, that basically, um, it's a box with a little um, L-shaped bench. Uh, it has a wood stove in it. Um, and on the wood stove is a tray with rocks. And you pour water on the rocks. Uh, and it evaporates and you have heat and steam. And so w- when you're using that, do you have to figure out a way to like do you take the roof off or something to vent the smoke and heat up the stones and then put it on or what? like what happens to the smoke from the oh it's a wood stove so it's a it's a it's a contained it's a contained it has a chimney um, it has a chimney with a contained uh, fire so it's yeah it's all being exhausted through the uh, chimney okay cool. yeah yeah that's a yeah i i think that's kind of a classic way it's been cool because a lot of people have come through. They've brought their friends who have been to various places, and they're like, "Oh, when I was in Finland, we, you know," and they talk about all these things that we don't, you know, we don't experience. But it's actually a common thing in a lot of northern climates to have these sort of ceremonial, but and yet everyday events where um, we are. You know, just doing the relaxing thing of getting uh, getting warm together. So, I think that's one of the the cool things about um, the globalization that happens with the internet is that you can take all of the favorite things from different cultures and you can say, "We need one of those in Toronto." Yeah, and steal it and you build it. Oh well, yeah, and and and, and that's the thing also that there have been a lot of saunas built in. Oh well, there's another sauna that we know of that was built in the in this city. Um, and I know of a couple other projects uh, in North America where people are like, what this community needs is a sauna on wheels, and ours is on wheels as well. And it's what? Like, yeah. 
it's kind of a a clause so that it doesn't it doesn't have property value. It's just its own building in it with its own value, not on the bil- not on the land. Um, and so we kind of move it and get it out of the way. I think we're not going to use it in the summer. This sounds like another good. Um, this sounds like another good reason to learn carpentry. Yeah, man. Sounds like you're applying. <laughs> totally, carpentry is so handy. Mm-hmm. You can just. Yeah, actually, I had never been inside of something that I had built before. Like, I've sat on things I've built, I've ate at things that I've built, but never been inside of, a, like, a space, and that is, is really cool. There's an odd kind of satisfaction that comes from it. Did you feel like the provider of the community? Like, I have made shelter. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know that concept, the abject? No. Abject is like um, something that comes insi- from inside of you. Um, it's sort of the medium zone between subject and object. So it comes from inside of you, but um, when it's external, it's outside of you, and you can look to look at it kind of objectively. Ah. Um, so I, it was explained to me like tumors or babies, mm-hmm. things like that, like things. Or artwork. Um, artwork doesn't. It's artwork is the mash of external things by you. So right. you're building things. Well, I but mean, it starts in, it's in it your does, head first. It's yeah. Idea and actually, you know what? I've, I have felt that way when I went, when I'm building things, like I'm like, it started in my head and I made a plan and I measured things. And yeah, definitely. Yeah. I was talking to Matt Hamill, um, a few days ago and he was talking about how trippy it is to pull out your old Moleskine notebooks and start looking at mm-hmm. plans and things from like six years ago. And yeah. you go, this started as a sketch and this became a real thing. Yeah. But this is where it started. And it was yeah. this. And then yeah. it, it's like a magic, like a spell, right? You yeah. have like this this initial incantation, these initial scribes, and then it became a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. This um, philosophy that I'm reading most recently is is sort of tracing the thingness of things (laughs) as being not just you know the physical element in and of itself but also all of the historical sentiment that builds up to be that thing um and also you know all of the marks on a desk that were made by all of the many papers and letters or whatever that was written on it or the meals that were eaten on it and all that kind of stuff like it's very cool to think about the accumulation of meaning and and just the fact that it is the way it is because of all of those plans and missteps and oh I didn't get enough of this and so I have to make this other concession and I just think it's cool. Alan Moore has a has an idea, a philosophy that kind of touches on that. Like there's an entire psychic geography that that uh permeates everything in the world um you have like the physical and you have the people that inhabit the physical world but then there's all the stories that inhabit Mm. an area and they the stories act as an animating force to the people that live there and and it 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 changes culture and it changes the the events that happen in the future in that yeah it's it's a very interesting way to look at the world and I, i hope that one day google has a has a section in Google Maps where you could like turn on the psychic geography of the area and you could say like oh this is the 
the gutter that T.S. Eliot used to hide out in and look yeah. up ladies' skirts. And this is the <laughs> this is the the place where King Kong climbed up, right. you know, in fiction. Yeah. Like you can have a psychic geography that has things that happen in fiction and things that happen in real life. And I mean, this is similar to the idea that I put forward of idea space, a kind of a space in which mental events can be said to occur, an idea space which is perhaps universal. Our individual consciousnesses have access to this vast universal space, just as we have individual houses, but the street outside the front door belongs to everybody. It's almost as if ideas are pre-existing forms within this space. Oh, that's so interesting to think about Google's place in the whole picture of things. Um, do you remember that in, in, in Hart House, in the building that I work, they have uh, these little plaques on the wall that's like you like dial in your cell phone? And Who you, set that up? I don't know. And I actually was waiting for an elevator, you know, in on my work time but had my cell phone in my pocket and started dialing but didn't didn't make it through the whole thing i have never listened to the ones in hard house but it's a, such a cool project you what are they called i don't remember but it's you you listen to stories around the city and they're they are yeah they're phone numbers with like extension lines it's so cool that's what that's it that's what that is it's the same concept i wish that google would take some of those uh ideas and and run with them like instead of trying to rip off facebook and doing like a google plus thing like how cool would it have been to just make more um projects like that where you have like an open tag or something that people can leave messages to you anonymously or whatever or some sort of system where it encourages like a connection between people that's different than you get from a lot of other internet kind of areas it seems like like we're kind of stuck in this um this holding pattern where both google and facebook have just they've popularized blogging like that's all facebook is it's just like yeah a simple way to blog yeah it's it's blogger except there's there, it's heavier traffic yeah on it yeah and i feel like it's cooler when google first started they were building tools like Gmail was a tool mm. and YouTube was a tool. Google video was a tool mm. for expression. Right. I want to see more of that kind of weird weirdness and something that's like more decentralized, something that's like more in the real world. Yeah. I, I, I also like the concept of the um, cumulative historical idea where uh, the project is building uh, through time where people can refer to that history and um, and access it in a way. Yeah. Small batch. This idea grave is fueled by Canadian Club's small batch whiskey. Classic 12, year aged. Whoa. Thanks. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, just like, um, I want to hear stories through time. Mm -hmm. I feel like time is, um, and, and archives are a thing that we are building in like, you know, posting and blah, blah, blah. But I, I, I don't, yeah, I, I, I'm not, I'm actually, to be honest, really not engaged with the internet on 
many fronts. Like, I have a Facebook page, and I and I do participate in it fairly regularly. Good for party invites. Very good for party invites, <laughs> but also I'm one of those people who's totally like, like there in spirit, like in my head. I'm like <laughs> joining in spirit, you know. Um, so, whatever on that front but uh it's um yeah i'd like i'd like to see the time building as well you know like i'd like to hear the story like if somebody you know telling stories is so is is an amazing thing and it would be nice to hear stories through time about a location not just like this is an important historical event that happened here it's like no important historical events happen here every day yeah Yeah. yeah, yeah. like let's recognize that and participate in that and like build these things together because it is the cumulative efforts of so many i've been thinking a lot about um the end of the industrial revolution and how we're coming out of a period where everyone was encouraged to be very specific factory workers, right? Mm, And the factory extended nationwide, right? Like you had factory artists that like go to school to an academy and they get accreditation and then they do work that becomes a a semi-commodity and is sold to like a certain class of people. And uh, there's expectations for how those people are supposed to act and dress and their social class and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Yep. And one thing I think is really cool about what's happening with um, the internet and the spread of information and the amateurization of a lot of different things that used to be jobs, like for instance, carpentry, or if you want to learn how to do um, genetic sequencing, you can do that as a hobby in your house. All of the information is available and you can get the equipment on eBay. And, you know, there's this, there's this whole, um, this this whole like wave of info that's coming out and it's it's kind of like encouraging a new form of literacy that hasn't existed before it's like the idea of like that da vinci style renaissance person Mm -hmm. is becoming a mainstream type of thing like people it's common that people are multifaceted now it's common to find somebody who's interested in weightlifting and also knitting, and also blank, 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 blank. It's hard to pigeonhole somebody and say, like, you know, Sarah works at the Seven Eleven, and that's all she does. Like, yeah. we expect people to be multifaceted, and we accept that people can surprise us with the amount of knowledge that they have. I think that, I hope that, like, one, we eventually will arrive at a, a scenario where we don't have that prejudice we can't when we're riding on a bus it's so common for us all to like just see everybody around us as the other mm-hmm. we just see everybody who we're riding the bus with and go like well i have special ideas and insight but none of these people do they're just like the other they're, they're mm-hmm. these are just like yeah totally. boring douches that are going to their boring jobs but in reality like i have never met anybody that where i've like d- taken the time to have an intimate conversation with them and gotten to know them what's going on in their heads and stuff i've never met anybody who i didn't find interesting who didn't have like thoughts and dreams and creativity and all sorts of insights that are interesting it's 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 just that there's different levels of people who share that you know Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who have gotten accustomed to the idea that they have uh, society has an expectation for them and they've gotten really good at hiding all of the interesting aspects of their their characters 
hmm, I just think about like you know points of expression. Where where are, where are those people? Um, and how are those people expressing all of those different um, interests and knowledges and points of creativity? I think that's that's my fascination in the um, like contemporary folk art, um, which is like garages and mm-hmm. um, or or that what what I can see from the street, which are people building, making things in the city, like a very modern, relatively modern city, like we're. You know, but there's definitely so many grades and levels of um, people working in and expressing themselves in the built environment that are evidence of those things, you know, and also writing, you know, like, you know, uh, the the literature that people expose or put out in their little um personal libraries or the writing in the sidewalks or graffiti, um, the kinds of points the the way that expression sort of trickles through and people find it and it doesn't have to be explicit like I'm putting this out there for the public it could just be like on my property I will make this decision that is like I'm gonna do the paving stones like this or whatever you know like there's just all these little decisions where otherwise you wouldn't know what people's ideologies were or what their tastes were or what you know, just, yeah. But those things are evident when you walk through streets and see what kind of garbage people are throwing out. You and get little hints as to what the inner life of these people yeah. is. Yeah, so, I mean, that's humbling and, and cool and beautiful. I think it's evident, but it's you have to f- maybe find beauty or accept that there is more more to life than just, like, consumption i don't know just like refuse Mm -hmm. um it's not just an incoming outgoing there's a process that happens in between where you process that which you use and um you know the world is reflects that i don't know yeah you you, one of the the themes that i really liked about the documentary jiro dreams of sushi was this idea that you can get a kind of exuberance and an understanding of what life's all about by trying to become the best in the world at whatever job that you, you're doing. And I forget the, the Japanese tradition, that the, the term for it. Um, fuck. Uh, it's called... Um... Wabi sabi, wabi sabi. Is that was that it? Maybe. Okay, wabi sabi <laughs> is the term um, where uh, beauty in the imbalance, basically, hmm. um, or uh, yeah, I think, or beauty oh. in, in 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 the unfinished. Yes, that's what it is. Yeah, that's what it is. How um, something's faults something's unfinished edges can give it its essence that's why and if you make it too like factory oriented if you make it too close to spec it kills the soul yeah 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 we all you know fuck up all the time (laughs) and or not fuck up but like i just think in woodworking there's so much like precision and Mm -hmm. there's so much 
um, you know, sanding, man, like you're just sanding <laughs> and you're sanding with the grain, you're sanding with the grain. And then all of a sudden you hit another part that's against the grain or whatever. And then you're against the grain. And I'm sure they'll come up with a robotic arm that'll handle the sanding The perfect part. sanding. No, that's something that I think only humans can do perfectly. We've got machine. Anyways. And then you can see it and you can see it forever and you can see the mark after you've stained it or whatever. But, um, yeah, in all of that, you, you, you recognize these small little moments where you just went over the line and whatever. For me, I'm not such a perfectionist, so it doesn't really matter. But yeah. in the, in the, in the big picture. And then a lot of times it takes an educated eye to see those little defects. Right? Yeah. But the these were, these were notice. things that you would ag agonize over. over and yeah. it's just, um, but the Japanese, they, you, they like knots. They like holes in the wood. They kind of, they were the ori um, um, originators of live edge uh, furniture, ah. uh, which is like hit its sort of like fashion, uh, you know, high yeah. point recently where if you looked around, well, like a couple of years ago, actually, I think it's kind of coming out of vogue, but the um, live edge tables were, you know, really, really hot because that was revealing the natural, there wasn't this con like complete control right. over the physical medium. And it's the opposite of that kind of Ikea particle board type approach where yeah, everything's completely synthetic. Well, yeah, I think, I, I mean, Ikea came from a lot of different places. Particle board is a product of a post-war mm -hmm. lack of trees got to use the mulch plus the glue equals like a really sturdy board that doesn't warp or bend and so oh, you can cool. bring it into a lot of different humid uh or humid indexes a lot of different climates and it's not gonna separate on you so it has properties that are that are valuable aside from in, on an international scale mm -hmm. and i mean they have a whole system to the reasons why that that um, furniture functions the way it does on the scale that it does, um, and and the Japanese, I mean, there are, there are some Japanese designers that are known, I think, like in ceramics and in furniture and a bunch of different and in architecture for acknowledging that there is a natural form and that there are properties in the in the physical form that you cannot help mm -hmm. and that embracing those things and understanding them are part of the beauty of yeah. it i think that's most craftspeople. yeah i see strength. a bit of that in uh kind of frank lloyd wright type of architecture too where it's um you're kind of blurring the line between you're embracing nature a little bit let's have a waterfall go through the house yeah although i mean i've heard a lot of criticisms about his work mm -hmm. in many ways and in in fact that he was a visionary but not really super strong on the like engineering side of things <laughs> like there's a quote by him where it's like frank my uh my roof's leaking he's like well that's how you know it's a roof it's like <laughs> no <laughs> no <laughs> that's not how you know it's a roof that's how you know it's a broken roof so yeah um, issues like that where definitely visionary he just said wabi-sabi <laughs> wabi-sabi <laughs> y'all <laughs> no yeah so i don't know contentious issue for frank lloyd wright definitely a, um definitely a guy i don't know too much about him yeah 
but I feel like he wouldn't understand Wabi Sabi. I think he'd be no. a fan. <laughs> yeah, like it's definitely the modernist attitude is to conquer material. It's mm. like, we've got this. Like, we're going to make this straight. It's like, no, you guys. Like, don't you know this? You can't make anything straight. Like, wood is breathing all the time. Like, it's warping all the time. Like, forget about trying to control it. Mm -hmm. Or if you're going to control it, understand it. You know, if you can't beat him, join him. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's the modernist attitude. And so many of the like big man modernist architects that I know of and have studied Corbusier and, and Frank Lloyd Wright are kind of hopeless in that category. They yeah. make beautiful things on paper. Their drawings are amazing and, but not so successful. And they contributed the some stuff and now they're dead and we can build. Yeah. And, and, and improve and, stuff. And their houses are, are museums and, and it's really awesome to go there probably. But yeah, we can. I think learning and, and being uh, less rigid in, in our expectations. Um, yeah. And I think hopefully more creative on, on all fronts in terms of like, you know, we're creating a new space to live in. Like, I think my big thing is responding to your own personal ways of living. It's again in that like retrospective curatorial, um, uh, viewpoint where you're like, I've lived in a bunch of apartments throughout yep. my life and now this is my home. And, you know, say you were to buy a, a house or whatever, what would it look like if you were going to design your own? It would be, a, a hopefully, not just like a bunch of magazine pages cut out and pasted together, but it would be something that that allows for you to re reflect yourself and take all of the things that you've learned from the ways that you live in past experience and put them in a new space. I, I wish that I had more spatial literacy because I feel like I don't even reflect on how a room makes me feel. I feel like I, a lot of times there's an inner inner life that's going on in me where I'm kind of in my own head and I it doesn't even matter what my surroundings are. Really? It doesn't matter? I don't know. Like maybe it's affecting me on a subconscious level, but I don't really I've never really had a a preference for what my my house looks like. Really? And I feel no, like that no, comes you from have. a lack of of literacy. Like I think that I need to be more literate about what spaces are supposed to convey and what there's what they are probably doing to my subconscious in order th to be more aware of it. I think the question of sub supposed to is, is is not really the issue. I think it's tapping into how how it actually does make you feel. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about like the materials that you naturally collect, the things that you naturally accumulate. I like plants. Yeah, I, like I can see that. Yeah, uh, me I like too. white. Yep. Um, but I guess maybe it's a pragmatic thing because I've never really had control over that, right? Like I've never been able to like buy mm. a place or design a place. But or... it's not buying and designing, it's gravitating too. Right. Like you, you choose them, but they choose you too. Like it's, it's sort of, I don't know. I've been in this more, my most recent, um, head space. I've been in this sort of reciprocal, like it's, um, things are thinking too in a way that is just that like 
a communication level that you don't you can't right. you can't articulate but you can you can participate in mm-hmm. and it is in the personal curation of your life that you know that that you that you express that i do think you get i do think y- you know mm-hmm. i do think you know i just don't think you think you know right. <laughs> and it, it could just be that um there's other projects that are taking precedence and that are taking more of my energy and if i was to just turn the attention to it maybe there would be more curation that could kind of go on more gravitation yeah Yeah. i mean part of part of what i'm thinking about these days is um the the tools that you use um so the ways that the tools that you use um illuminate the larger network of things in your life. Mm-hmm. So this microphone is on a stand that's on this floor and we have a table between us and this, tab- this table is really valuable because it's holding a bunch of different things that we can refer to and sort of feel comfortable together. And um, these chairs are facilitating this and all of these different things. Um, this setup is really awesome and comfortable. Um, so just like all of the factors that are here, but what are also the tools that you use every day? Like, how do you know that when you open the drawer, the knife's going to be in the drawer and you're going to take the cutting board out from the place that it lives and you're going to chop the thing and you're going to make the food that you always make because it's Tuesday night or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like these kinds of, um, these kinds of networks um, sort of light up at the moments when you're unconscious, when right. you're not thinking about... You're not thinking about pulling the knife from the drawer, but you do it every single day and that kind of thing. And where to, anyways, I, I think the question is like these, these, um, well, I, I, maybe, maybe you would like more counter space in that time. I, I it's, eh, it's, it's a curious question because there are things you would change if you had the option, Yes. but you work with what you have. Yes. And you organize things within that space in ways that are rational to you. And every person has a different way of organizing it. But Ikea only has so many different kind of shelves. It's true. And we only understand, you know, we understand things in terms of the options that we're provided. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's kind of, it's kind of working with, with what you have, and I don't think that there's a good or bad, but I think that there is a way that you recognize what you are drawn to. Yeah, there's been a couple of rounds, mm-hmm. like I've found most of my furniture being thrown out on yeah. the street, right? And it's so funny when you're touring around the neighborhood on the first of the month, mm. and you look at a table and you go like, oh, I like that table much better than the one I have, and you right. swap it, <laughs> you go down and you cart the thing out, yeah. and it's like, oh, this is much more functional. Yeah. You know? Yeah. A rectangular table versus a... There used to be a round table in the center here, mm. and it's a, a rectangular table is much more functional See? than a round table. See? So there table. you go. It's like, it's it's kind of abstract things that you know, that you mm. know. You're like, this is going to be better for me because I have this shaped apartment and I know the flow of my space innately. Yeah. And how um, disturbing it is when you go visit your parents in the suburbs. I was trying to cook something in my mom's kitchen. Yeah. And I, I went to reach for a knife and it was like one of those plastic handled um, sets that you get from like Walmart and every single knife is dull and you're just like oh I can't even touch this tool how how do you even cut vegetables with this exactly sacrilege that's the thing that um, (laughs) 
something that is out of place or is not at its most efficient point is mm-hmm. um, is most apparent to you. Like the things that feel right, you don't notice. Yeah, is I think that's what I was meaning to say is that like you don't you don't notice what feels right because it just feels right and it just it's so easy. But there are points where you're yeah you're at your parents you can't find the thing you're looking for or they're at your place or whatever like it just it's not that's that's the essence of this like home home kind of idea. And um, and that, and that's what's really cool about recognizing natural forms of of material, and then also natural forms of people. I yeah. think at the same time, like you can organize your shit how you like it. And I that's, think that ties into the psychic geography thing too. Yeah, it's a hyperlocal version of that where it's it's like Allison's space. What are what is her psychic geography for the the environment? Yeah, and how isn't it strange that we can wander through the apartment that we haven't visited yet and we go this is probably her space this feels like the person that well and also like when like i'm coming to your apartment for the first time and i'm like oh this feels good like this person that i've met on you know and know and now i'm you know feeling their space and i'm like this also feels good it's like the extensions of the self are through the things, but it's not just just your things. Yeah. It's also how you place them. Yeah. Like, it's and the arrangement. You'd be surprised if I lived in some sort of, like, hobbit dungeon. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. What to expect. It what would... to expect. <laughs> I try not to expect anything yeah. in general. It's, this place could be more interesting. I, I think it's good. If we had uh, stalactites or something. I really or... like this. <laughs> completely utilitarian yeah the, uh, the the cloth wrapped around the light bulb no 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 it's uh, it's, it's the bulb. smoke alarm oh it's a smoke because alarm. It's, <laughs> the modern smoke alarms are so goddamn sensitive that the steam from the shower will set it oh. off the steam from boiling water will set it oh, off dang that's so not good we gotta we gotta drape it in order to to stop it from squealing at us in okay. french and english that there's a fire slash carbon monoxide oh does yours actually speak because ours does too. Yep. It says, phew, uh, f- how does it say it? Fire. Min- it says carbon monoxide, monoxide carbon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fire, unit three. Yeah, exactly. Unit trois. Wow, that's <laughs> good. Cool. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, so looking around, you can like look at the things, like the plants hanging, and then also the rod that they're hanging from, and then the th- hook wooden hook things that are attached to the wall and did you guys attach those wooden hooks uh i don't know if the wooden um, drapery rod or whatever came the rod place. but there's actually no drapes the drapes are hanging from a string that are tied ah. that are screwed into the wall so that rod is not for drapes it's for plants and yeah. other ornaments and there's stuff that i inherited too yeah so you, you get that like where you can make a, I guess you can glean some insight on what are the things that haven't bugged you enough to fix. Yep, <laughs> totally. And what are also the things that are kind of interesting and so you just leave them and that's, or evidence of, of time passing and, and, and again, this history, this concept of history, building in a space. But yeah, I mean, also when I think about it, I think I look at those like wooden hooks that are holding the dowel that are holding the plants and I'm like, how do they mill those? That's a hmm. that would be a very tricky thing 
to have it tapered like because that? Because the tapered thing, yeah, it would be very tricky. It would. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not so much. Anyways, I would think about different ways. But then again, and then you go into the mind frame of the person who's like putting their fingers really close to the blade. And it's maybe a sketchy cut. And you're like, ooh. Anyways. That's so strange to to um, look at every object that's in your world and, and think about the people that, that built it. And like potentially the fingers they're missing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that's a crazy thing. Like meet a lot of carpenters. You're like, ooh, check out your fingers, dude. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> like the guy I work with, he's got um, a bunch of things that happened to his fingers. Yeah. He's not missing them, but he mitered, which is making a cut at a 45 degree angle on his, uh, on his hand basically. And so his index finger is like kind of on a, on a point and his nails all crazy and it just makes like the way that he picks up things different anyways there's all these kinds of things and i was asking him about like all of these processes and he's like yeah i chopped off my digit you know just like it's like holy shit but it's a real thing you have to contend with and also an amazing thing when you're like making things you're aware of your whole body you're like Am I sane enough to pass my fingers through this mm-hmm. situation where there's a spinning blade that will cut my fingers off if, yep. I, if I'm not okay? And you know the you know the score when you signed up. Yep, exactly. So this might happen. You gotta be, you gotta be good with yourself. Sometimes the saw bites. You kind of it reminds me of um, tribal warriors. You see somebody, you know they're battle hardened because they got the scars and they've got the yeah. evidence that of the job that they have. Yeah. Like, or when you see um, a construction worker or somebody who works on a boat tying ropes, the yeah. whole structure of their hands start to change. They get wider and totally. they get the big knuckles and stuff yeah. from it. Yeah. Have you done boat stuff? No. Oh, okay. But I've, I've always been jealous people. of, of uh, there's more, the men in my family have more manly jobs. Um, more man tactile. Man jobs. More, I have a man job. Yeah. Well, I mean, just the classic kind of mm-hmm. laborer type mm-hmm. of stuff. And it's it's strange, like, we have the same DNA, but my dad's hands are, are, are like, a distorted thicker. version of mine, like, uh, wider and oh, yeah. thicker from, from having te- using hammers and stuff like that. What does he do? Different muscles. Well, he was just, he was in uh, the, like, art production kind of side of things, like, through his life, but he's always been handy, so building decks and, and things like yeah. that. So he's got a bit more... Uh, experience with that kind of stuff than i do time out bathroom break yeah can Go we do it. that is that possible yeah i'll just keep riffing yeah riff riff on the riff on the dad zone dad zone tell me about it i was gonna say that um one thing that's interesting about having uh, a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds um encouraged to make stuff and express themselves um there was this one night we uh, went down to a poetry reading at Clinton's bar. I think they still do it every every month or so. And they encourage um, a lot of amateur people from the poetry community to go up on stage and read something that they wrote um, in the open mic. And there's kind of um, supportive applause for it afterwards. And what's fascinating about it is even if you're not into poetry, you'll you hear you will be exposed to a lot of voices that are surprising 
Um, this one time we went down and there was this kind of middle-aged um, woman with kind of a shawl and uh, a very kind of middle-class looking um, clothes and things. She seemed like a nice, a nice mom from, from, uh, from downtown Toronto, like a Margaret Atwood kind of type. And she got on stage and she delivered a poem that was a love sonnet about lemon meringue pie. And she was very sensually describing like the meringue and the waves of it and how it, it ripples up and how sensually she put the, the crust into the into the, the pie form and how she was very care, caring about placing it in the oven and having like the heat envelop it and doing just enough to, to enliven it and, and, and uh, bringing it out and then serving it to her family and how the love that she put into it was like being passed into their bodies and stuff. And I was like, how f that's fucking fascinating. Like to be able to, to have that kind of, it's almost like a Charles Bukowski kind of thing where there's all these like hidden voices that haven't had a chance to express themselves. And in this new era, when everybody can publish things, you finally get a chance to hear a lot of like insights and stuff that you would never get experienced. Uh, to, uh, yeah, it's so cool. That's so cool. I have been thinking, and this is something that's kind of on the back burner for me, but is something that I want to, I want to bring into the world is, um, I think often about my work as dance um, <laughs> because it's a funny, you know, thing of like being like, I'm wrestling with this door and yeah. I'm like trying to put new hinges on this door and like, you know, or carrying this thing through these narrow hallways and um, the, just all of the different uh, components that go into dealing with objects in space. And I imagine sort of, it, you know, with or without those objects, that the bodies are, are, are really quite quite neat. And yeah, if if you go into any particular field I I don't know. I, I I'm I'm kind of naive and um earnest in, in my expectations that like it that counts. Mm -hmm. Sure that counts. Like um if I'm you know I think, you know, any 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 movement of the body is is, is a dance it's just the way that you present it and yeah. it's the same way like and you start to learn like the leverage that you need to elegantly do something like move an awkward object yeah how, like some people who are amazing movers yeah. they just understand the spatial relationships enough yeah. where they they've got all those tricks down where they're like okay you got to tilt it this way and yep. then put it all the way up to the ceiling and then yeah down the hallway exactly and you go like how did they get that thing that couch through the door it's impossible yeah, yeah. We had to build a scaffolding inside of the squash courts at work. Mm -hmm. But in order to enter into the squash courts, there's this weird like double door, a Dutch door, which a Dutch door is like where the top and the bottom open separately. And the top part had been sealed shut. And so only the bottom part could open. And so you'd have to duck every time you entered into the court. But so the all of this, all of the scaffolding material had to be sort of like swooped in. And it was kind of this dance and it was all these funny funny like sort of football builder kind of type guys who were like uh, anyways it was funny to, to to do it with them and to be sort of orchestrating but I'd like to see that you know like I, I, 
I would like to see the pie maker come to the poetry slam. I'd like to see the builder come to the contemporary dance fair and just like, you know, move the way that they know they can and have that change and maybe blow a couple of people's minds. Yeah, because before we got into this uh, 20th century obsession with trying to pigeonhole everybody into a very specific job, there used to be broader culture like that where the lumberjacks had their own way of dancing. And totally. <laughs> the log world. And their, their own music <laughs> that they would write. And it was all extensions over their kind of worldview and their lifestyle. Yep. And it'll be great to see more of that kind of coming through. I think that we are at the time right now to see that happen. Mm -hmm. I think the institutions and the fake institutions that are emulating the real institutions, but in a parody kind of way, are equally as powerful at this point and are creating the right kind of space that where we can sort of step in and be like, hey, I don't know anything about this, but the way I see the world, like this is sculpture and this is dance and these things are also like totally you know lowbrow um objects and movements but presented in certain ways and put on the certain lights then you can't i you know it it is they are equal and they are adequate and they are interesting and beautiful mm -hmm. and let's look at them yeah and like anyways i would like to see that i i would like to move towards bridging the trades and the uh, and the arts and encouraging people who are completely uh, inappropriate or feel completely out of sorts when it comes to the idea of making stuff and, and doing art I hate this this um, attitude for the last five years where there's been attack of like the idea of the hipster Oh. Like somebody who's a, an artist poser. I find that so question, yeah, questionable. Because it's 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 a, uh, I want the 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 sphere to expand. I think that everybody should start making stuff. Like I don't feel insecure when I see somebody. It's like oh, they're not a real photographer. They have no business taking photos right. and putting it on their thing. Yeah. Do you think so? It's it's, it's it, it, Do you think it's the insecurity of the expert? I think I think that Who's it's a like, transition that's happening, right? right? Like, right, right, right. And it's it's going across the board. Like, it's not just in the arts, right? Yeah. There's insecure bankers who are looking at digital tools that are coming out, and they're saying like, "I feel really insecure about this new innovation that's coming in because you're not going to have a role for me anymore." Yeah. And instead, what I think we all have to do is kind of embrace that everything is is opening up wide, and there's opportunities for a wider kind of literacy where we can all start expressing ourselves not just through telephone conversations or conversations at work. We can start expressing ourselves with objects and um, video curation and culture jamming and all these little things that help us understand ourselves and how we see the world and help other people understand us. Yeah. You know? I'd make an amendment, though, to that to that. Uh, statement just in saying that we we have always been mm -hmm. making expressing ourselves but it hasn't been recognized as right. expression like people have been making their own furniture and just being like yeah this is what or like you know shaping their own spaces or you know cooking their own meals but well, yes i guess uh then the the new layer on top of it would be the kind of conscious conscious assessment yeah and celebration of the acts of making that other people are doing yeah 
Um, throughout the 20th century, it seemed like we've inherited an attitude from school that it's only appropriate for certain people who have certain jobs to do certain things. Yeah. And even among, like, your your close, like, art friends, there's a funny amount of, like, static that people just get from instinct where they're kind of like, you're a video guy. What are you doing this podcast yeah. thing for? Right. You're off track. That's yeah. not on brand. You go like, well, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, I haven't put myself in a corner like that. Yeah. Like, I have a lot of different things that I want to do and right. I'm just going to do them. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I I, I think also it, it is the um, the medium too in, in that like I think different friend groups of mine think of me in different ways. Mm. They're like, oh yeah, she's my uh, art friend, or yeah, she's yeah, my yeah. carpenter friend, or she's my uh, drinking buddy, yeah, or running, running mate. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Like there's there's a lot of different things, but the expression of of those modes, and and for me also, yeah, being like, I got this dance idea, and I actually want to see it happen, and I actually want to like you know, see what it would look like to put costumes on people and do a thing. And I think that's what makes you an amazing bridge, right? Like you end up having these, these node characters where they're people who have double lives Yeah. and interesting things start happening when they they start to cross pollinate those two worlds and go like, you know what, this carpenter, you should come in and do this long winter thing. And then this musician, you should go come in and the carpenter thing. We could build like your custom guitar. Yeah. But that's also a cool thing about, you know, just artists, artists in general or makers in general people who have other we all have other jobs you know like we all have our well most of us have like another thing we do mm-hmm. and that thing totally is our day-to-day impacts the way that we see people things around us and yeah so so um so we are multifaceted and, and, and interfacing in, in terms of long winter and seeing people being like, oh, yeah. So you also like, what is that other thing? And oh, you're also a, a female carpenter. Wicked. Mm-hmm. Or you're, all, you know, also working with your hands or you're also uh, dealing with people or you're or you're figuring out. Anyways, there's just so many things you can do and so many things that people do do. And. Yeah, I guess the mediums for for finding those things out and and sharing sharing the many f- facets of their minds is uh yeah. complex and and exciting. Yeah. And uh it it's it's a strong contrast to what was going on with our grandparents, right? Because it used to be that you picked a job <laughs> and then you were hoping to work at that place for 50 years until yeah. you retired and got your gold watch and and that was the end of it. And now it's it's where Seth Godin has this idea of project land. Like, welcome to project land. There is <laughs> yeah. There is no certainty that Apple's going to keep making computers 15 years from now. There's yeah. no certainty that, um, you know, name blank, Chrysler is still going to be making cars, right? Like, yeah. we're all in a position of, we all have a posture. The people who are doing really well right now are all have a posture of more malleability and... Yeah. Um, they they seem to be consciously seeking out opportunities to reinvent. Mm. I love that that uh, concept. If you look at um, the previous uh, revolutions in technology, um, there's this talk by um, the speaker Kawasaki, who used to work at Apple, and he was talking about. 
the evolution of the the, co- the refrigeration industry. Mm. Like, yeah. At, at one point back in the 1800s, people used to go out onto frozen lakes with a horse and a saw, and they would cut blocks of ice mm-hmm. and then drag them into the city. Yeah. And then you would pay an ice man to come to your house and like put the ice in the house, and that would keep your food cold. And then all of the people that got rich doing that missed the opportunity to invest in a centralized freezer that would make the blocks and deliver it. Mm -hmm. And then all of the people who got rich off of that missed the opportunity to invest in uh, freezers that would just freeze the water directly in the houses of the people. You know, there's this, this wall that happens where like the, the people who have made money off of the old system are so reluctant to try and and reinvent and break the system and, Mm -hmm. and get ready for the new thing. And I feel like all of us have have grown up with an with a with a pace of change that's so fast that um, we kind of instinctually uh, we we step on stones. Like we're always kind of looking at the horizon, going, like, oh, "What's that all about?" Oh, yeah, try that. Hmm. And but again, I I will step in with, with a a historical amendment, just in saying that it, it is important that the ice saw cutters understood ice you know mm-hmm. th- th- the progress of knowledge was cumulative in some way like culturally you know like that they understood like okay like water freezes at like this temperature and then there's some guy who's like okay i'm gonna make a machine that makes this thing like really get cold and then you know like it's a, it's a whole it's a whole progress of things um that that allowed for those steps forward, even though there was somebody who was continually doing their thing that they were really good at, and then somebody else came forward and sort of yeah. like, um, uh, you know, pushed them out of of popularity. And there might be some sort of restraint that allowed a person to be really great at being the guy with the horse cutting the the blocks of ice with a saw, but made him or her like completely inappropriate art they weren't they wouldn't have been happy like going to that other that other version of the job yeah yeah i feel i feel like their understanding of ice as ice was important for the progress of you know bringing ice into the home they they knew about bringing ice into the home as like actually physically cutting ice and and physically transporting it to the home yeah and I wonder if if that was a satisfying job, if you felt like you were the master at that, you would feel somewhat like disheartened that you're going to lose the physicality of it as soon as it turns into a machine job. Uh, yeah, you I know, mean, this, this is my sentiment. Lost. This is my sentiment about like the world as such is in, in that we don't have like it's not it's not like winning and losing like I'm the master of of this thing and taking it but instead that the knowledge that I have is important and has been a part of like a a, 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 um, a history of knowledge that carries us into this this more contemporary point where we're sort of building on things instead of replacing each moment with the moment that comes after it's more mm. of building as a cumul on a cumulative level right um, of the knowledge that we have. Um, and, and so, 
Yeah, I feel like the things that we pr produce and also the things that are, like, trendy are, are um, like, I remember, speaking of ice, like, uh, some friends from that live in New York City were visiting last summer, and they were talking about how super clear ice is, like, all the rage in New York City. <laughs> like, the kind with no bubbles in it. Like, the clearest of the ice. And, like, how the fuck do you fucking freeze this ice that does not full of bubbles? ice cubes. Yeah. And then, and then, but it's not just the ice. Yeah. It's the shavings that you make from the ice. And people make these shavings from the ice. And it's, like, a thing that they do. They have this block of ice that's, like, totally immaculate in the middle of the city which you're like what this is like the biggest one of the biggest cities or like most metropolitan cities in the world they have this immaculate piece of ice which is poetic in and of itself and then they shave it and then they you know put it in a cone or something and then put syrup on it or something you know it's just like it's like this is like the fanciest most beautiful most poetic ice cone you can ever buy um, and they were talking about that, and I was just, I was overwhelmed. I couldn't even comment on, on on all of the elements that were happening at that moment. But it was just like, whoa, ice, you know, not only is it this amazing historical thing, but it's this thing that we understand through time and have understood and not understood, and all of those understandings, understandings and not understandings about the way it affects us and the way it preserves our food, the way it, um, you know, makes us feel, um, and also makes you feel, you know, ice in your drink or no ice in your drink, like, is, is, is ice in your drink, like, a, um, uh, a symbol of conquering? Is it, is that a symbol of, uh, like, uh, fanciness or something like or is it like if you go to like a um, third world country or second world country like is ice in your drink like a symbol of uh hepatitis c you know like yeah you know like yeah. it, 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 it could be so many things um it's a complex thing like all things um anyways uh, yeah it just I'm 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 very convinced of this his history as cumu cumula cumulative time yeah. uh, theory. Right. On Joe now. Rogan's show, they bring up the the samurai code a lot. Joe Rogan, like Fear Factor. Yeah, he's got a great <laughs> podcast. And, oh, he uh, has a podcast. Yeah, he's like the king of podcasting. Whoa! And, uh, he's got this great uh, samurai quote that he brings up all the time about how if you know the way. Uh, well, you start to see it in all things, mm. and that's that's totally the vibe I'm getting from the examples that you're giving. Like when you become obsessed about the properties and the history of something like ice, you start to see its influence on like all the things in the world. Yeah, you're like we're all here because of the impact Fuck of ice. Nice. Everyone in Ontario, well, this whole place was under yeah, thousands yeah. of feet of ice. <laughs> Up until 10,000 years ago, and then it rolled back. Yeah, man. <laughs> totally. Well, have you read 100 Years of Solitude? No. You should read that book. For anybody who, yeah. Who's into glaciers? No, no, no. For anybody who's into, like, world history, mm -hmm. condensed into poetic, like, uh, historical, magical realism, mm -hmm. that is the book. Like, it's such a beautiful book, but there, it's about this um, uh, uh, town in South America that is... N unnamed or maybe it has a name but i can't remember it but it's it's indistinguished just sort of just kind of a 
a, a formed place. Um, and there are characters who have the same names, and so you can't really tell how much time is passing because you don't really know who's who. But time is passing, and the story evolves, and you do get a sense of like who is who. But in any case, um, an ice factory does come to town, and you're like, oh, man. And you realize the importance of and the concept of preservation. Mm-hmm. And anyways, you know. Ice as a as a symbol, um, and the way where it stands in places where it does not exist. Like we were like, oh yeah, like ice, because like we like the lake freezes, and I know ice, you know. But it's like there are places where things don't freeze, and they have ice. Imagine that, you yeah. know. Get that through your head. Yeah. Like that's crazy. And have mosquitoes all year round. Yeah. And malaria. No thanks. And beauty. And beauty. <laughs> In some forms. And other forms. And like but you do. know, it's it leads to a kind of there's a joy that happens every summer in Toronto where, you know, everybody has a little bit of a kick in their step. I personally don't suffer from seasonal depression. I like the seasons, but I definitely see the influence that people who do have seasonal depression have on everybody else right. <laughs> because it only takes like one or two people who have that scowl on their face oh. and they're walking and it's cold and they hate the gray weather they're, and it, you see it replicate it's more than everyone. one or two people <laughs> it's definitely more than that oh it's i mean i take vitamin d because i work in a basement mm-hmm. mostly like and it's just I do feel the effects on a daily level of my endo and my you know the sunshine is important it's really, really important. It's yeah. the medicine. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know, the the place does come alive. And the city is totally different in the summer, and it's amazing. Yeah, but go to the island in the in the winter. Yeah, I have been. Yeah. I almost died. What? <laughs> so I had this idea, right? Oh, no. I, I, go, I go, okay, this is going to be fantastic. I go to my friend Dean. I'm like, we got to shoot a music video on Toronto Island. Mm-hmm. And the premise is going to be you're going to start rolling a snowball and we're going to go from one end of the island to the other and we're going to get this thing huge. The snowball will be like nine feet high. It'll be incredible, right? And we'll do it all in one take. We have to do like a like perfect kind of packing snow for that kind of thing. This is what I found out, yeah. Allison, is I got to the island in February and it was so cold that the snow wouldn't stick together. Yeah, it was like dry, dry snow. It was that dry powder and we were... It was like only the heat from our hands that would get the snow to stick together. And it was just this arduous, um, you know, like in, in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the Philip K. Dick novel, there's like this this entropy machine where everybody logs in to watch this video of an old man climbing a mountain and pushing a boulder. And as he nears the top, people throw rocks at him and he loses control of the boulder and it rolls back down and he has to start again. And it's kind of like the society's way of feeling something in a really digital world. This this was the experience. Watching Dean like try to get this snowball moving over and over for hours. And I was completely not dressed for the weather. And I got acclimatized being out there in my fucking Converse sneakers and stuff in snow up to my knees. And I didn't realize that I had, like, onset <laughs> hypothermia until I got on the boat that was heated. And yeah. I started to thaw out, and then my body just started convulsing. Because mm. I was too cold to, to shiver. And I didn't even notice. Wow. Um, 
uh, I felt like I was close. I was yeah. Like, oh, interesting. Yeah. Shock. Yeah. <laughs> but oh, we man. got the footage. I feel like this theme of uh, of the, um, you know, the object or the mass that is being pushed by the people mm-hmm. is like a thing that you brought up. Like this is the second time we've brought it up tonight. And yet it hasn't it hasn't been realized yet. This is probably why it's on my I mind. I think you need to do something about that. I think I got to make this thing happen. Yeah. In order to stop thinking about it. Yeah. I'll just put that on the back burner for a little while, but at least we've acknowledged it and got it in I need help with the paperwork, though. Yeah. That's why I need to recruit you. Okay. I'm not super excellent at paperwork, but I can... I'll do something. I'll cool. I'll do what I can. So, do you have any um, upcoming upcoming things, or does... Once the, the weather warms up, it's like everything is located in long winter, or is it... Do you do stuff out throughout the summer? Um... Well, I am pers- I'm I'm using this summer to pursue my master's thesis, which I'm not enrolled in an uh, institution for, but I am um, pursuing an academic, uh, some sort of product, a paper or a photo essay, um, or I, I'm pursuing a, a, an intellectual goal. Um, I don't know what form it will take, but I'm also taking this, I, 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 I'm seeing, I'm, I'm, uh, looking into this dance forum, actually, <laughs> um, and gonna see what happens with that, um, and we'll see, we'll see. I had a, a little sculpture show in, in the beginning of the spring, so that was also nice. It was a nice opportunity. It's just good to have a space to build and make things unconsciously, um, and also without uh, without a, a lot of um, insecurities or whatever that comes yeah. with, like without with making for things for th- for a specific audience, yeah. and just like making things for, for things. And I haven't, I've never really been in a position to like have a studio to make it make whatever I wanted to so um yeah so so I'm pursuing a lot of different things and I'm I'm being open to the medium that 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 will produce them I'm getting back into that spirit too I don't know how it crept in but there was this transition from doing art projects for fun while I had a day job Mm. to going quote-unquote pro where you quit your day job and you're working solely on art and then slowly it kind of morphs into commercial art as like the rent needs to be paid and, and all of those yeah, kinds yeah. of pressures. And then I, I reached like kind of a breaking point where I was where I said to myself that like it's not sustainable to do this anymore because there was just too many. I was killing too many of my darlings, if that makes any sense. There was a whole lot of pitching things okay. to bands. Like if you're doing music videos, like a big part of your time is spent writing treatments, right? And the way that people um, industrialize that, the way people turn that into like a profitable business is you build up a catalog of treatments and then you scout bands at parties and things and you have a nightlife and then you use uh, factor and much fact as like a, a way of getting money grants and you pair that like book of treatments with the bands and you end up with this thing that's a product. Right. And what was happening to me is that I was finding 
this there was no joy in it like i was becoming a professional person who typed out emails and came up with really carefully um designed things like a music video of like start to finish and then have you know feedback where they go like we don't like it do something else and you go oh. or you have uh somebody take like the element that you care most about out of the middle of it and they say like i like this part and this part but do this and you start to end up f finishing even the things that that come to fruition and you finish they're not the thing that you wanted to make it's yeah. this other kind of thing and i found that like i needed to start separating the art and the commerce because i wasn't getting any joy from it anymore mm -hmm. um as fun as it is to embrace the idea that the art is the collaboration and you're just trying to make the client happy and the joy that they have is, is what the focus should be. I still have, um, my, my personal reason for making stuff is that it helps me understand the world and it helps me learn something about myself. Yeah. yeah. And I can't, I can't lose that, that part of it because that's what I like the most about it. So I'm kind of, I'm trying to get back into that spirit of what you're talking about where, I get into a zone where everything in the project is me trying to explore something, uh, a project that I'm, a, a, a question that I'm curious about and trying to find out something about myself by experimenting with like different media and things. Yeah. And the contingency that people have to like it or that you're going to make money off it is not really even part of the. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th I, I do think there's a middle ground between, like, also allowing for, like, a, a, um, a collaborative spirit to mm -hmm. happen. But when it's in this sort of, like, really straightforward kind of way that you're describing, I can see how that would be, like, yes, cut this, don't leave that, nah, 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 you know, like, really, really specific. Um, I can see how that would be uh, invading on that, on that um mode of expression and I do yeah 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 that's 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 truly admirable and I, I, I it's hard it's hard I it's hard to think of bridging um the platforms the commercial platform and the self-expressive platform and all of those different spaces for it to come together I think what I can take away from the previous economy and the way we used to organize the, the formats that art took in, in the previous decades, the things that I like to take away from it are we've kind of arrived at an idea that albums are comfortable length at like 50 to 60 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. We've kind of arrived at an idea that an episodic um, storytelling, a good length is about 40 minutes we've kind of arrived at the idea that a movie feels best at about the 90 minute length, that a novel is best at about the 200 page length. Hmm. Those little mechanical things that are just consumption parameters, I think are all I'm taking away from the previous way of doing things. That's good. Any uh, other pretensions about like how it's not a real novel unless HarperCollins puts it out. All of that kind of stuff I don't have any use for anymore. <laughs> yeah, and just go with what you gravitate to because mm -hmm. that's the real thing. Don't forget about the real things that are just 
what feels normal because you reach for it every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And appropriately enough, um, I consume things on that level too. Like I don't have any pretensions that someone is going to buy something that I make because I don't buy things. So I just, I'm under the impression it's just like I spread stuff. Yeah. I put stuff on the internet and people can, can take it or leave it. And that's, that's the, the attention and, and all of the, the peripherals that come from having attention and making a connection with somebody I I'm trusting in will be more valuable than like the 295 or whatever that you get for somebody. Cool. Well, it's been a very valuable, it's been a nice time being here and thank you for this conversation and everything that you're producing and all of the many conversations that will come after this. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> this has been a collaboration. Yeah. So do you have, a, do you want Twitter followers or anything like that? Do you no, want I, to... I don't have anything. You don't have any. But... <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything. Well, you're around, so. <laughs> I'm around in the city of Toronto. Yeah. Give her a high five, people, if you, if you see her on the street. Yeah. I got a new bell on my new bike. So <laughs> I'll ding ya ding for just a smile. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Enjoy the weather this weekend. Yay! <laughs> bye bye. You went the distance. For all of the, all the distance. What is the distance? Two hours, twenty minutes. <laughs> no problem. Just feed me whiskey. It's all good. <laughs> that was totally good. It's really crazy to listen to, like to have it be the headphone zone where you're like in it. I find that that's what makes it work. Yeah. There's something that, like, uh, as much as it's scary when when somebody has to go in front of a microphone, I think it really focuses the way that they're thinking, where they go like, okay, what do I really feel about this? Mm -hmm. You know, when you have casual conversations with friends or people at an office or whatever, they can kind of get into that habit of just going like, oh, we go, it's okay. Oh, yeah, things are okay. Nice weather we're having today. Yeah. But you put a microphone in front of their face and you say... How you really feel. How many of these have you done? This is... There's 27 that are live, and I've got another... This And I've got another five that I haven't edited yet. Okay. You edit them? Yeah, well, I mean, I like to splice in a bit of background music. How... Theme is this, music. You can't hear this. No, 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 no. Okay. I just I don't... I think that, like, when people first arrive, it's weird when there's, like, dead silence. Yeah. You need sort of be too aware, so... No, it makes sense. I like to keep it's it just, casual. What is it? Like, are you just playing, like, Gro- It's just Groove Shark. Groove Shark. Yeah. Okay. I have, like, um, a couple of Groove Shark playlists that are just, like, the Pitchfork 500 uh, and, like, Guilty Pleasure stuff. Okay. From, like, the 90s. Okay. And I just call it my party mix, and it's just the, the background ambient, whatever. Yeah. Totally so sometimes embarrassing stuff will come on and go, what the fuck is yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Totally. Um, yeah. What was your impetus? Like, I'm just curious about why you were like, why me? Um, I've been kind of, I've been kind of thinking that like, so you're not you and the long winter gang like you don't it doesn't really apply to you but like i felt like the momentum of a lot of the toronto art scene was derailed by the ford years Mm. and it's a funny thing like there's only 
10 or 15 minutes a day that I feel like people in the city get time to talk about big picture stuff where they go like, Toronto, what should we do? Who should, you know, you should get together with this person and we should go and put on a party or whatever. Mm. And for like four years, that 20 minutes a day was just dominated by gossip. Where it's just like, can you believe what the mayor's doing? Oh, who's on Jimmy Fallon? And I felt like I saw a lot of my friends in the art scene go off to Montreal. I saw a lot of my friends like leave the, the scene and just get jobs. I saw a lot of my friends go crazy. Um, and it, I felt like it was a direct link to, to that, like that malaise that was surrounding the city. Mm -hmm. That's and strange. I felt like I wanted to start trying to link people up again. Mm. And the only, the easiest way that I felt to do that would be to like start, well, I got to go have coffee and stuff with people more often. But that's only like me and you hanging out, right? Yeah. Like there's not a, there's not like secondary kind of things that, that right, pop that up from that. Yeah. And you can only be in a couple of places a week right yeah. and you only are able to even like accept those dates from people that you've probably collaborated with on something else or you know there's yeah. a lot of contingencies but with something like a podcast like you can have a conversation with somebody for three hours and then it lives in cyberspace and there's uh you know it's just a small community there's probably like 130 people that listen to the show like so far yeah but they're all gonna absorb these uh we get to whisper in their ear for like three hours yeah and then suddenly someone becomes aware it's like oh there's wood shops and stuff in Toronto. i don't even know that yeah, or, yeah, oh yeah. there's you can skate to the lake last winter that's yeah. crazy i totally yeah. should have tried that right you know there's i think there's 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 kind of like a, a lot of empowering and supportive things that happen when you share the things that you care about with your scene yeah you know, like, yeah, so totally. for instance, when you said that there's, there's people in your network that might not know that you also do blank, your relationship with those people gets stronger when they find out that you do blank because yeah. they might know someone happens to mention, oh, they need a, some, a something built in the, their office. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, how are we going to find somebody who can build things? Well, why don't we go to Craigslist or whatever the the kind of blank answer is mm -hmm. but once somebody knows something about you that is specific like that you become an option to those and then that leads to like economic stuff and that leads to better connection with those people yeah and i was finding that when it came to ideas like i have ideas for feature films and i have ideas for episodic series and things and i found even with my core group of friends it was hard convincing them that something was a good idea just because like they're not around to be in line and sync with you yeah. around like what's a cool idea yeah and i found that like showing up every week and just putting my thoughts down on a recording and then having that play to somebody while they're rotoscoping or whatever as they're working on their digital office art jobs um it starts to become like much easier to have a shorthand with them and have them help you accomplish a, the big thing that you want to do right like they're all briefed yeah you know yeah yeah totally and and also the fact that you can explore sort of deeper concepts like i i was 
I, I was really amazed that we got to, like, the, a lot of the things that I've been, like, thinking about and processing in recent months, like, in my own mind, and that have been totally private, like, in, in this notebook, like, previous <laughs> notes are, like, about these these theories and, and things, but they're in a conversational tone, which is way more accessible and um, totally approachable in a way that it's, like, people being, like... I didn't know about that. What do you think about, like, what, what about my space? Am I a design person? Or um, should I be more conscious? No, you're already conscious kind of questions. And, 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 and um, uh, yeah, it, it, yeah, just the way that the medium is accessible to people is something that's really fascinating and, and, and interesting about the, the whole thing. The other thing that I like about it is that much in the same way that when you compose a blog even if nobody reads it it helps you yes. line up your ideas yeah, totally and I, th I feel like the more often I can talk live to a real person about something that I care about mm -hmm. the better I am at conveying that message mm -hmm. so that if there's an opportunity in the future where somebody has an open ear and they've got resources to help you do that thing you've you've rehearsed you know yeah. how to to say that thing to inspire confidence in that person yeah. that you are the, are the person to deliver that thing. Because yeah. that's like the two halves of the thing, right? You might have a good idea, but people also have to believe that you're the person to deliver that idea yeah. in order for them to back you on it. Yeah. There's all sorts of times when you hear somebody and you go like, oh, that is a really good idea for the book. I don't think that they can write it. Yeah, <laughs> right, 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 yeah. Yeah, totally. Cool. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a neat thing. So funny, but also very encouraging. I was having lunch with my mom today, and she and I was talking about how I was like really building up to this conversation um, that I was gonna have with my boyfriend about like a big personal matter, and um, how I was like kind of like you know trying to compose myself for it and like feel. Anyways, whatever. And she, and then I was like, oh, but I'm also going to go and do this thing with a friend later on, and we're just going to talk, and it's just going to happen. She's like, so wait a second, you're just, like, totally cool <laughs> chatting, like, off the, off the record. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, it's also funny how, how, how it just comes out of you or whatever. There are different moments with different weights, um, and, like, I'm, I'm kind of, um, always feel like I have this weird thing where I'm like detached when I'm when I hear my like if I ever speak on a microphone which I've had to do a couple times at long winter like I've like stepped in and been like check out this thing and I'm like always like whoa like I can hear my voice amplified and it doesn't sound like me at all and I'm like whoa and I just kind of freak out and the message goes like I don't even know what happens um and so I kind of expected the same thing to happen. Like, we're listening to ourselves, our voices are, we can hear them in some weird way, and, but it was okay. And we could express ourselves. We could get past the, like, initial shock yeah. of, like, being totally derailed by the... Bathroom breaks or bleh. filling up glasses or... Yeah. I, there was a lot of pressure that I was getting from my friends who wanted they wanted an explanation of what the podcast was about and they wanted to know what the format was or they weren't interested in listening to it um 
they didn't say that in uncertain terms, but you could tell that that was the the onus. Like, and it's it's just a practical thing. Like, we've been trained by TV and by yeah. uh, a lot of the media Everything. channels that you're supposed to have the one line explanation about what the thing the is, pitch. so people can they know if they're in the mood for it. It's yeah. like, oh, it's like what stuff you learned in history class, and yeah. it's gonna be stuff you don't you didn't learn in history class, and yeah. it's gonna have a commercial break at this such at the two minute mark, and there's gonna be facts about this and then a little the bit of music after that theme and song hey, and then uh, it's over yeah and uh i none of that made sense to me and i feel like when you're talking about how the the context and like the the mood of the thing makes different ideas come out i feel like as soon as you introduce a bit or a segment or something there's a stall that happens in people because like you say to somebody you know what's your theme music and then like you can see the wheels turning where like people are running down a list of guilty pleasures versus things that songs that are stuck in their head yeah, yeah. like that it, but it's just top 40 radio and that's yeah. boring and then and there's like all these these uh, uh schematics that happen right whereas like when you're just having a conversation with somebody um things can flow much more naturally and you can get into circumstances like there's stuff that we talked about today that I've never even knew I was thinking about. Yeah. Right. But you have an opinion on it somehow that's been percolating in your mind. And sometimes you'll riff on something for like eight minutes and you go like, I never even knew I cared about this yeah, thing. It's been eight minutes. Yeah. It's been building up in there. Yeah. And I didn't even notice. Yeah. That's really cool. Totally. And especially when you're, when you pr- when you propose the concept of like talking about the internet, I was like, I don't do the internet. Yeah. I noticed like, you didn't have a website. I don't have a website. I don't have <laughs> anything. I don't do the internet. That's yeah. not my deal. Like yeah. I'm, I'm like, that's not my deal. I don't know that world. Um, but I've, I have ideas about it and like I could talk about a little bit of it and I could talk about how I'm not into it or like how I'm not a yeah. part of it. And I think that's a, Anyways, it, I, it was just it's interesting. Do you know Winston Hacking? No. He's uh, from Exploding Motor Car. That uh, they're like video video um, makers. Uh, they're not active now. Uh, Jeff Garcia was in it, um, um, and they uh, they were collaborating together and stuff. And Winston since moved to Montreal with um, Andrew Zuckerman or whatever, and. Uh, but he's very much an advocate of like the analog revolution. He's like, all of this analog stuff is going to come back because these digital tools are making everybody. You know, well, this is the thing. Like freaks. when you're talking about the hipster thing is like, um, one of the guys, so there's this process at, at, at a heart house that's happening where they're like drilling holes in the building so they can like pipe all of these wires through the building so that they can have wireless internet. So it's, like, complicated for me because I'm like, you guys are just, like, threading these crazy wires through these crazy things so that we can have wireless internet. Like, why? I don't understand, but I, I just accept that I don't understand and I move on. Um, but they were like, oh, it's amazing because you can, like, I was talking with the guys, the construction guys, who I know well and who have been in the building for a couple months now and they're like oh it's amazing like you can start to like stream things on your your like iphone and i'm like number one i don't have an iphone and number two like i don't stream things i listen to like cbc all day long nice when i can and otherwise my coworker likes to listen to q107 and i hate that fucking mm. show and um 
Anyways, and there and one of them said to me like, "Oh, you're such a hipster." And I Do was sure I'll have a wee, wee dram. Um, and uh, I was shocked that he called me a hipster because <laughs> I was like. <laughs> What do you know about me? Like, I work in this subterranean wood shop yeah. at Hart House. And, like, the only thing that I that you know about me is that I listen to a national broadcaster and I'm, like, maybe in my 20s. Yeah. What do you think you is so tell. loaded about that term? Because I don't well, think it means anything. But, but, but people place it on yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, You know? Like, but how, but why would they call me that? I don't know. What about me makes me that? Yeah. Based and on who And knowing that it's such a loaded are. thing, like, why would they decide to neg you like that and say... But is it a bad thing or yeah. is it a good thing? I don't know. Every like, time I hear it, it's it's a disparaging kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, me too. somebody goes like, oh, you're trying too hard or... But, but it wasn't like that. It was more like, oh, you're... It was kind of like hip, like... Okay. Young, it was 60s. Like, it was kind of like... It's kind of like you're a weirdo. Okay. Kind of like weirdo cool. That's how I kind of think of that. Yeah, like yeah, weirdo yeah. cool. I, I, I embrace that. But, I'm definitely weird. But definitely, that's how I think about it in my head. But then it's weirdo cool is, is like then distilled by the corporations into like flat brims and like <laughs> whatever, like something else. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it looks different in the corporate way, but in the way it just, in the like actual people, like, I don't know. I would probably be... I'm probably a hipster if there is a hipster. Like, listening to records and, like, being pretty analog. Like, if that's a hipster, then sure. Yeah. But, like... Anyways, I just... I was. It was so interesting to be in that moment. To be like, really? Okay. Interesting. Like, anyways. It was complicated. Because I don't know these people at all. Yeah. There's, there's one guy, he's like the... He's like the manager of the... He's the foreman of the whole drilling job, so they're drilling all these holes, and they're threading all these pipes, and they're bending the pipes so that they fit around the building, and then they're pulling the cords through the pipes, which is a very complicated thing, too, because you can imagine what that's like. And then and there's all these people with the different specialized jobs, and Scott, who's the main guy, looks really young, but kind of, like... There's something about his face that, like, you it de- deceives you about his age. And I was like, oh, what did you get up to this weekend? And he was like, oh, I was hanging with the kids. I was like, oh, you got a bunch of kids? And he's like, yeah, I got four kids. And I was wow. like, you have four kids? Like, whoa. <laughs> like, anyways, it's just shocking. Yeah. Anyways, all of these things, that, the, the perceptions of people mm-hmm. on your, you know, at, at your day job, it's shocking. Mm-hmm. I'm just shocked that I get classified that way. Yeah. For being like but the, it's, it's, the weirdo it's, dirty girl. The funny thing about it, I think, is it's going to be... Um, we're just we're on the fringes of things, right? I feel like the future doesn't arrive all at once. Yeah. There's not. There's like a, a core group of people in Toronto that are living how everybody's going to be living 20 years from now, I think. Um, and like that's, in condos and stuff? Well, no, little aspects, like how you'll run into somebody who doesn't know what a torrent file is, or isn't aware that, like, every album in the world is available for free off the internet. That would be me. They don't know, but you'll run into somebody who's who's in their, their 40s or whatever, and they just have a very limited understanding about what the possibilities of the world are. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um 
I, I was I was having like a, a mushroom trip last summer and <laughs> I had like the greatest like stoner thought. I was laying in High Park on my back. Yeah. And there was nothing in my periphery that I could see. It was just like all sky, right? And I had the oddest feeling that I was like levitating upwards. And I started to feel like aware that the objects that are in your space, like the building height yeah. and the hydro lines yeah. and all of the signage that's around us, mm -hmm. they're kind of like, um, they're visual walls, like they're physical walls, but they're also like mental walls that help ground us and distract you. us from like the fact that we're on this hunk of rock that's flying through the universe at like a hundred thousand miles an hour and, that's and there's no infinite. roof on the thing right yeah. like it's just space up there yeah but we don't even like conceive of that like consciously because there's something about the architecture and stuff that keeps us level and we go like the world is three stories and high I live in this box and i live in this box and i go to that box to do my job and my job involves like turning stuff into like artwork for hotels and there's all these like compartmentalization that's going on. Yeah. Right? And then you go and you watch a Ted talk about like the large hadron collider or you read a sci-fi novel and you see like a concept of like, Oh, space elevator. You can run a tether up to the fucking stratosphere. And if you put like the end, a weight on the end of the tether orbiting the planet, synchronous, uh, the geosynchronous orbit, you can run a pulley up that thing and you can raise any amount of like uh, material into space without any energy. Like it's a counterbalance effect right, that like right. if, that works the same with elevators. It's called space elevator. And if we built one, it would completely transform every aspect of life. We would be much more rich as a, a global population because of it. Like, could we put all our garbage into space? We could put all our garbage into space, or we could go mine asteroids and get the, the minerals from the asteroids down, or we could put all of our factory infrastructure in space so that the carbon and all that is not an issue. Whoa. So, but, and these are transformative things, right? But it's not, it's not even on the radar of people. Like, I wonder, you go, yeah. if you were sat, sit down for, with Stephen Harper for three hours and do a podcast with him, it's like, are you even aware of the possibilities? Or have you built, like, this House of Cards oh. structure around you where, like, all you see is, like, the little petty politics things. Clearly that. Clearly that. Our, yeah, it's, it's all relational. That's yeah. the thing, is that we are, we, are only, we are only as strong as the things that are around us and the relationships that we have with our, you know, people, with our um, co-workers, I think. You know, like he, he, I, I just feel like people, yeah, are close-minded into in in the degree that we ha that they they can only extend themselves so far as a result of their connections with other people. You know, it's like, well, he, you know, why would he, why would he expand his mind that far? Like, to yeah. what end and to what? And what good? would the risks be? Yeah, because I've seen that on a, a lower level, right? Where like you're even in an area like you're working in a design office or you're working in like a, a place building cabinets or something and there's people that consciously want to limit even that where they'll say like you know something's not my job like that kind of not my job yeah. attitude where yeah. it's oh, like yeah. oh i don't answer the phone that's not my job it's oh, like I but it's been ringing for three hours aren't I you curious i work in a union zone thing? and it's like <laughs> we are on walkie talkies and it's like if they don't call your name 
they're not calling you. <laughs> so don't answer. And it's like, you know that information? Don't answer. It's only if they call your name kind of thing. Funny fucking attitude, totally. But that's what it's all about. And I, yeah, and that's what it has been all about. Like, if you're in this sort of like, you know, capitalist sort of, or whatever, this machine, and they're like, call your name, you come up, you say, you answer, you answer it, like, don't speak unless you're sp spoken to, kind of like rhetoric, and then go back. And all across the economy, up to, up to something like the presidency, like, this is how presidents speak. Yes. They go on the nation's airways, and they talk about general things, like liberty. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. They, they never go on and they Nailed they it. never talk about I'm really excited about this new iPhone or like, Oh my god, this like, iPhone watch is just taking over. I, I'm gonna keep talking to you on the bowl. 